All right, so today you'll get a chance to listen to Owen Dasher straight out of Malvern, Iowa. Now uh, hails in Carter Lake, uh, Iowa. But in the Omaha area, he's well-known as a great investor, wholesaler, flipper, huge real estate investor. He's on a commercial now. He's our partner, actually, in a, in a couple of deals that we have going on, businesses and, and different real estate deals. And I think some of the things you'll get a chance to take away from to listening today is uh, one of the quotes that got me is not to be the hammer always looking for the nail. So, so many of us get so tunnel visioned on either one of our goals or maybe just two of our goals or maybe just trying to fixate on making one thing work. Whereas that's why he used the phrase, uh, it's like you're a hammer. All you can ever see is a nail. So it's just really interesting to, the, to, how important it is to keep that open mindset. I, I love that that quote by him. Another thing that we like to do on the show is we like to ask people, what are some of their daily habits? And he, he says that uh, working out is really important to him. Now, obviously, you're going to hear that all the time. But the way I like to, what I like about how he explained it is he, he said it's non-negotiable. He said, I know from this time to this time, I will be working out. I don't care if there's a property walkthrough. I don't care if there's a phone call I have to jump on. I'm going to make sure I take care of me, and I'm going to make sure that this item is accomplished because it's important to me and it's non-negotiable. I really like that. Yeah, no, I, there's so much to talk about, Owen. He, he's really charismatic and he's a great investor, been doing it for over a decade now. One thing kind of to, to tag on to habits, he, he is meeting with individuals once a week, a new person once a week, and it truly is your, your net worth is your network and he's actually taking actions. These aren't just random chance coincidences of people, you know, by happenstance, creating a conversation. He is intentionally going out to meet with different individuals that are in business and real estate and, and, and sticking to that, which in turn creates more opportunities for him. So I am super excited for you guys to hear from not only a great friend, great partner, but the great and one and only Owen Dashner. Let's get it. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Keeping It Real Estate podcast with Colin Schwartz and my co-host, Chris Palmer Lou. Chris, how you doing today, buddy? Phenomenal as always. Well, that's fantastic. I'm even more phenomenal with our guest today, Owen Dashner. Owen is a not only a dear friend, but a great mentor of mine, and he's got quite the resume. So I'm just going to let him jump in and give us the high level 30,000 foot view of his background. All right. Well, started in real estate about 17 years ago, uh, long ago in a land far away, Council Bluffs, Iowa, 2005. Bought my, yeah. Bought my first, first house was a flip that was uh, for investment purposes anyway, and didn't do so well on that one. Um, I started in real estate investing to hopefully get financial freedom at some point. So my income could exceed my expenses and the whole, you know, rich dad, poor dad mantra. I flipped a couple houses, ended up buying some rentals after that. When I really kind of caught traction was during the financial crisis. So 2008, 9, 10, I bought everything I could get my hands on that a bank would allow me to, and then some. And over the years, I would just flip a couple houses, buy some more. Uh, in about 2014, I started getting into small multifamily. So my very first apartment complex, quote unquote, was a fourplex. 
bought that, managed it myself, hit about 20 rental units before I started really declining in my ability to handle everything and life and my business and my work and my kids and all that. And ended up starting to peel off some of my properties to a property manager. That freed my, my time up to kind of scale a little more quickly. And I started basically utilizing a third-party property manager to peel off my rentals as I bought them and then turn them over to them. And started buying a little bit larger deals. And then eventually in 2018, I left my corporate job of recruiting and HR work of about 20 years and went full-time into real estate investing. Well, now, I, uh, I, we have a history. Mm-hmm, we do. Um, I'm intrigued that you were the head of HR. Yeah, well, head, I was involved. Okay. I was around, you, the guy behind the guy. Sometimes you thought about following the HR guidelines. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's okay. Yeah, yeah. I see why I see what you're doing there. Yeah. <laughs> How did I end up in HR is the question. Uh, uh I want to rewind back, man. I don't want to kiss, uh, stop you on your roll, but 2005 your first deal? Yeah. That's awesome. And talk, I mean, I know you've gone through a lot of this cuz you've been on a lot of podcasts, but I I have not asked you about this. So t- tell us about the first deal, how that went. I was looking at everything real estate that I could read about, study, talk to people about. And I didn't have a big circle of friends in that were interested in real estate. So I kind of just stuck my nose in some books. We didn't have podcasts back then. I mean, I'm surprised the internet was around when I got going. Um, But I researched as much as I could and I was trying to figure out, okay, what facet of real estate could I do and experience some success reasonably quickly in. So I, I read about everything from lease options to seller financing, to flipping, to wholesaling, to, you know, you name it. I read, I read it about and read about it. I, I decided I wanted eventually to use rental properties to build up my passive income. And the only way I could do that since I didn't have any money was to use my W2 income, but also flip houses so I could make chunks of money and then use that as down payments for rentals. For 13 years, <clears throat> for 13 years, you started real estate and for 13 years you were dual hatting uh, yeah. real estate and uh, a W2. I mean, that I think that's huge because not a lot of people, people get into it and they just think about bigger pockets and f- fixing their entire life within a year and passive income. And 13 years is the grind. Yeah. I think a lot of people think of, you know, the get rich quick scheme. Uh, you know, I'm going to get this real estate. I'm going to do nothing. And I, I think all of us here realize it's a little bit differently. I think there's, a, there's an opportunity to do that. Um, so what, what led you to real estate? What was the kind of the catalyst for that? How did you choose a real estate in a land of all different options? When I was, when I was 18, I went to uh, junior college to play baseball and um, I was trying to figure out what I wanted to be, what, you know, for the rest of my life. And I was really frustrated because the things I was interested in, I didn't know enough about, I, I didn't really know what I wanted to do with myself. So I, I went to a JUCO, I knew I wanted to play baseball, I knew I wanted to, you know, chase girls in college. But I had people, friends of mine that were going to, you know, four year schools, and they were like, Oh, I'm going to major in, you know, psychology, or I'm going to major in, you know, business or, you know, something else pre med, whatever. And I was like, I just, I can't, I don't know what I want to do. And so I was kind of soul searching and trying to figure out along the way. But one thing that really stands out when I think back to that time is I was always interested in business. I bought my first stock when I was 18. Uh, it was Gillette because they came out with the, uh, the Gillette, uh, what was the razor they came out with? Triple it was like, or yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like revolutionary. Yeah. 
So I bought their stock because I love their product. And then I bought a little bit more when I get more money and, and whatever, never amounted to much, but I was really interested in that. So I started reading like the, the wall street journal stock section and all that when I was 18, 19. Nice. So I was always interested in companies and business. And I just never really knew how to, what I wanted to do with that. So fast forward to a couple of different majors later, and I was still interested in that. And I would read books on the side about it, but I didn't really know what facet of that I wanted to pursue. Eventually in about two, in the year 2000, I got called on by a guy that was doing financial planning for Northwestern Mutual. And he got referred to me because I had a you know fairly decent social network. I was always kind of a connector of people. So you need a referral to somebody. I probably know who they are, and I can you know hook people up. So that was always kind of like my reputation, I guess. But he called on me because he got referred to me that still, I might still your reputation. Yeah, yeah. So he he called on me uh, thinking that I might be able to refer him to people. And the more we talked, he realized I was in recruiting at the time. So I interviewed people constantly. I knew a ton of people, and he said let me ask you something. I remember this. He looked at me and he said, what would you be doing if you weren't in this job right now? And I said, I thought about it. And I said, I would probably be doing what you're doing now. Come to find out it was more insurance sales related than actually like equities and stocks and yeah, things yeah. like that, that I was really interested in. So I want, I was, I was fascinated with the investing side of it, but not necessarily the insurance sales, right? Who wants to do that? So I, ended up getting an interview and I ended up diving into that. So I was a financial planner for about one year with Northwestern Mutual. During that time, I read probably every book they have in print about personal finance, financial planning, stocks, bonds, everything, right? So I had my series 663 insurance licenses and all that. That's that's all I had I had no idea. Yeah. It's it's so many people in the real estate sector are, are jumping in because they didn't like their job or they read Rich Dad Poor Dad and want to figure it out not a lot of people are like, I've read a million different ways on how to make money through investing. And I've landed on real estate as my favorite. And actually getting that financial acumen. I know, I mean, you have some stocks. I think at the beginning I was trading stocks too, because mm -hmm. I, I didn't know. And it was the closest thing I could touch to business outside of my W2. I remember I picked up a book and I found Rich Dad Poor Dad at the time. And I, I loved that book. It was a whole mindset shift. And then Cashflow Quadrant was even better, I thought, and more applicable to like how things work. Yeah. And I remember I read this book by a guy named Robert Allen. It was called Multiple Streams of Income. It was a, he was kind of like in the 90s. He wrote a whole bunch. He was like a self, you know, uh, finance guru and like business and, and real estate and all that. And so I read that book and I was like, wow, this makes a ton of sense. You want to supplement what you're currently doing with multiple income streams coming in so that you basically have a whole bunch of passive income and you're not relying on a W2 job. And that spoke to me. So I was like, this, wow, huh, that makes a ton of sense. So I looked in the back of his book in the index, like what else he had written. And I, there was a book called nothing down. And that was all about creative real estate. So I was like, huh, wonder what this is about. Read that book. And I've talked about this before, but he, he basically put out a challenge. And I think there was a reporter with the LA times that ended up, uh, accepting his challenge, which was you pick a city, tell me to go to it. I'll have nothing with me. And within one week I will buy a property there with none of my own money. And he did it. That's so awesome. he, yeah, he did a proof of concept and I was like, what right. you can actually do that. So then I was like, well, let me find some more about this. And so I read a whole bunch of other books. And I was like, oh my God, this is the way. 
And I had always thought that you had to have just piles of money to be in real estate. And I was like, I didn't, you know, I had poor spending habits. I was like a starving insurance salesman there for a year. Right. Yeah. So I was starting kind of with nothing. And then when I ended up getting a, a pretty good job with ConAgra Foods at the time, and then eventually IBM and so forth, but I was able to do some things to get started in real estate on the side. So that's how that's, that's how it all started. No, it's interesting. The, the creative financing, I know Chris is, I mean, Chris and I use a lot of creative financing, but for me, I just leveraged my personal, personal residence. I didn't know I could get a home equity line of credit. I could tap into that extra, you know, 20% of equity because I was able to leverage up to 95%. So I was able to get that 15, 20% Delta and use that for down payments. And it seemed like such a mystery. Everybody's so concerned about paying off their house. I'm going to live free. I've got a house. He still have taxes and insurance, but knowing that there's equity there and it's just not talked about. So don't pay off your house. Yeah. Don't pay off your house. Yeah. Paying down debt was always what was driven into your mind when you were growing up, right? You didn't understand that if you have a business and it pays for good debt, there's a difference between, you know, personal debt, which is bad. And then business debt, which if you have an asset that pays that debt, then you're limitless on what you can do. So learning that whole concept was, it was foreign to me, but once I figured it out, I was like all in on it. And that's how I kind of got started. What year was that on the people's money? I probably studied quote unquote for about a year and a half, maybe a little bit longer, just reading everything I could before I actually pulled the trigger on my first purchase. Because I did, I was scared about not knowing, not understanding values of, of properties that was my biggest disconnect in getting traction and going in that business. I didn't, I didn't understand rehab costs fully because I wasn't handy at all. And I didn't really understand what a house, what makes a house worth a hundred thousand dollars versus 150 versus 200. I don't, I don't think that's a bad thing at all though. I mean, I don't, I often say, I wish I didn't start on single family. I wish I would have started on multifamily, but I think that's one way to look at it. But what you're saying is, I didn't want to just jump into a large investment, whether it's my money or other people's money, unless building a little bit of a foundation. I think that's just intelligent and, and that's the due diligence that we should all have. I, I think the, the pushback that people usually get are that you're thinking too much. You've listened to every podcast ever recorded. You've read every single book. You still haven't done anything. What's that phrase like? Analysis paralysis. Yeah, exactly. That's what it is. I mean, but there's a fine line. I mean, I think it's ridiculous to go out and buy something tomorrow if you've never done any research. You have no idea what you're doing. But in the same breath, I think a year is probably about right. That's what I did. Yeah. I think a year is probably what I did. Yeah, what I think is interesting, I think it was Kevin O'Leary who said it. He says... Once I have 60 to 70% of the information on something, mm -hmm. I have enough information to make that decision. I think so many people are pushing for that 90, 95, 100%. They're chasing perfection. Owen, oh, you love to say this, done is better than perfect. And when you have that base knowledge, you can at least set yourself up in a good manner. You've done the training. You don't know how the game's gonna go until you play the game, but you've gone to practice. You've actually put in the work and you're gonna learn more while you're in the game. But the only way you're gonna get those reps is actually doing it. You know, it's, it's interesting if you talk to like when you have a market run up, well, like we've had a historic one for the last several years, right? So values just keep going up and up and up with real estate. Now we've had a hiccup, right? So this year has been the first time in a while where the record scratched. But when you start having, you know, Uber drivers and, you know, people doing your hair and bartenders and stuff like that, telling you that they want to flip a house or they're going to flip a house or whatever, they always say that's kind of a, you know, carrying the coal mine for, when it's probably not a great time to be all in in real estate because stuff is going to change. But it's funny because people that are wanting to get started in it, back to your point, Chris, 
they kind of want to skip over some necessary education uh, foundations of education in this business. And they think, I want to flip a house. They don't focus on it's getting the house and doing something to it and then selling it, but they don't have a plan after that or a plan on how they're going to get it or what they're going to do to it. It's just like, they think that's the way Yeah, they have an idea. It's part, it's an ingredient of a overall recipe on how you make this successful over a long haul. Because because if you go flip a house and say you make $30,000 on it, great deal. You've made some money. But, but lots of people don't have that next thought of what's going to, what are you going to do with that $30,000? Because the goal and what, what you said is financial freedom, because just having money that's depleting to zero on liabilities, liabilities, et cetera, it really serves no purpose. So yeah, having kind of that long, long-term view, I, I do want to ask the question because you originally started with saying financial freedom. What was your definition and your number for financial freedom back then? And how, how has that changed? At the time I looked at basically my, my income from my corporate job and what, what I would need to replace that income. That was my, that was my financial freedom number. So did that number keep moving up and up and up? Hence the reason why I ended up trapped in my job and not having the guts to pull the trigger on quitting it for a long time. Golden handcuffs, man. Yeah. 2008, I had my first daughter. And 2011, I had my second daughter. And between then, I got promoted. I got more a raise. I got more money. You know what I mean? And then I, got, I had enough rental properties. And this is the trap I think a lot of people fall into. I, I mentioned earlier that I had about 20 doors before I ended up using a property manager. So I was self-managing all of them, doing my job, my family stuff, my kids, all of that, and not doing any of it particularly well. And the trap is you have this number in your head or this thought of, I want my income to exceed my expenses. Therefore I need to keep it all. And I don't want anybody else to have a finger in, you know, the pie, so to speak of the income that's coming in. So I worked so hard to build up 20 single family doors to give that cash flow away to a property manager. That was my mindset. When in actuality, I was not doing a good job of managing it anyway, because I wasn't turning units over fast enough. I was, you know, I wasn't jumping on repairs like I should have. I was undercharging like by a significant amount. So when I hired a third party property manager, they rented it in like a week, probably two or three weeks faster than I would have for a hundred bucks more than I would have charged. So they paid for themselves. And that's when I had a big facepalm moment of like, oh, you're dumb. I could, like, have, been, I could yeah. have been doing this for a while. Yeah, exactly. So that so that freed up, I guess, some mental, uh, you know, things that were stuck, and allowed me to think a little bit bigger and kind of ideally put a plan together on how I can scale it and and you know catch up with my income with real estate on on you know as it was increasing with my job. I think that's the problem though is you hit a wall, and you know if you if you really enjoy swinging the hammer, meeting tenants listing things online for uh, vacancies. If that's what you want to do and that's your goal to to transition to that full-time job, then you're going to hit that wall. It could be 15, it could be 20, it could be 30, but you're not going to get to 70. You're not going to get to 100. And so I think it really, you know, one of the things we always push is to just structure this around what your goals are. When people invest with us, people making $500,000 or just $50,000, some of them want to keep doing what they're doing full-time. And that's fine. And that's that's the purpose of being passive. 
But if your goal is to continue to grow your wealth and your family's wealth, you're going to hit a scale. You're going to hit a wall super quick because you have the inability to scale. And that's obviously what you learned at 20. Yeah, and it's funny. And I know you guys have met a ton of people like this. But if you run into somebody and they maybe have you know worked hard and they, they bought uh, several rental properties and they self-manage them and they're always over there on the weekends, cutting the grass, raking leaves, fixing little stuff, right? And they're always there. The tenants know them by their first name and their kids and all that, right? And it's funny when you when you get to a point where you start scaling and you start using other people as leverage to do the tasks that you're you shouldn't be doing or you know are let's be honest I mean some some tasks are are not worth your time doing right so the the menial stuff when you hire somebody to do those things and you go out and you meet with a mom and pop owner a lot of times they look at you and they think huh, yeah you think Sucker. you know yeah you think you know everything you're giving all your money away dummy. And it's funny because when you're on the other side of the fence, you're like, you have no idea what you could have done if you wanted to, if you used other people as leverage. So one of the biggest things I think I've seen, and, and you've obviously seen this because and I want to get into this kind of red ladder, your company, but the individuals are looking so hard to hold tightly onto the cash flow because mm -hmm. that's the only value they see. They see that delta of their expenses and the income and what can they control? They think the income's tapped out. They don't want to raise the, the residence rent. They don't want to fix it up. They want to just keep it as it is. So they're going to lower the expenses. So they really only have one way to go. So they're over there, as you said, cutting the weeds, et cetera. But little do they know that investors like us, we look at it as a business. We're like, okay, we're going to, we're going to outsource a lot of these things, but we're going to increase the value of the business. Now that may exceed what the, uh, what the cash flow is at first, why we're increasing the rents and fixing up the property. But in the end, we're doubling the value on the property. I mean, a perfect example, I'm selling a duplex, picked it up from a guy, he owns two rental properties, super proud. He fixed everything on there. He put the new windows in, he installed his ACs, painted his basement, proud of everything. Cause there was a neighboring property that he was like, oh, look at that place, that's terrible. It's like, yep, you're doing a great job. I was able to increase the rents right away, but it was 50% more in value in a year for me outsourcing people to help cut the lawn, paint the place, fix it up, remodel the kitchen to increase the rents. And he just didn't see it like that. All he saw was the Delta in cash flow. So <clears throat> that's what I'm trying to say is that you, you viewed it through the business lens, right? And there's, that's our goal. That's why we work. That's your goal. That's why we are able to build these businesses. It seems like an individual like that is really enjoys the manual labor. Really, he probably put together models growing up, little toy models. Like he loves the work and he loves the finished product. If I had a model building business, I'd hire 17 people to build 100 models and I'd sell them. But he's like, I like one. It looks beautiful. It took me four years. And there's nothing wrong with that. But if you're going to build a business, you have to scale ASAP. I love real estate for one of the one of the reasons why is that aspect of it because there's no wrong necessarily wrong way to go about it i mean there's ways that you can improve what you're doing but if your mindset is i am proud of what i do i want to show my you know because you have people that are diy people that are really good at it and they have pride of ownership and they want their stuff to look nice and they they like knowing tenants and they like that's great they can do that and nobody's going to come along and audit them and say, <laughs> whoa, you're doing that all wrong. That's fine for them. But if you like you said, if you really want to scale a business, you have to look at efficiencies and leverage and, and get people involved that 
a lone wolf just isn't going to do. And I was there for a long time. I was scared to, you know, hire people and, uh, I'm still not as good at as, as a lot of people are, but yeah, but it, it takes, it happens in, in stages, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, at first it was like, I'm going to rent it all out myself. I'm going to paint. And then it was, uh, I'm going to start using contractors. And then it was, maybe I can hire an admin. And then it wasn't, maybe I can hire my own maintenance crew in house. Like there are different stages. We're still learning to this day that it's almost like you get there, you learn what to do, and then you learn what you can hire for. And then you get there and learn what you do and you can hire for. It just happens in stages. Yeah. And technically bigger is not always better because you, you can grow too big too fast where you think, okay, I'm going to scale up. This is what I read in a book, you know, and, you know, Harvard Business Journal. And I'm going to hire these six different people. But if you're not able to execute or help lead those people, you just have a bunch of people possibly running in the wrong direction and you can lose your business by getting too big. So starting off small, when people ask, oh, should I buy a 200 unit multifamily right away? You know, that's what I heard is the best thing. Grant Cardone says, don't buy a single family. I think I only own one single family outside of my house that's a rental, but I started with small multi, small multifamily and I still think it's a quality asset to own. It's easier to trade, you can control it more, and typically you can find better deals because you are working with mom and pop individuals. So there's nothing wrong with that. As you start scaling up and getting into these larger properties, you're gonna have more fierce competition that's been in this that has deeper pockets. It doesn't mean you still can't take it down. But learning and making mistakes on a small project, replacing one HVAC too soon or doing it incorrectly is a lot cheaper than 80 of them. You're, yeah, you're right. And I, I think people typically grew up in a house, right? For the most part, you have people that understand them. They understand the components of a house. They're, and, and so if you buy one and that's your first deal and you have it as a rental property, if somebody calls you and they say, the furnace is out or the window is cracked or whatever it is, you're going to probably understand what's involved in the repair or, or whatever with multifamily, you may have somebody that's pissed because another tenant's parking in the parking spot or a car rammed into the building. <laughs> like, I mean, all the crazy stuff that can happen in apartment complexes that is, is hard to know how to fix if you've never lived in one. Right. So that's, I think, you have to kind of walk before you run in that aspect. And I don't think there's anything wrong at all with if you have the ability and the right people around you to jump in right into multifamily. But I, I don't know that I could, I could have. Well, I mean, uh, I, I think that you'd have to spend the time and effort to build that team. It just doesn't just happen overnight. Because you were a lone wolf for a while, yeah. correct? When, um, so I'd like to kind of get into maybe Red Ladder and also where you currently are with your assets that you own, et cetera. But you were a lone wolf, wolf until when? when 2018. Yeah, okay. that was my, uh, so Brandon Tauber is my business partner with Red Ladder Property Solutions, which is a, basically a house flipping business. Well, we're more a real estate marketing business. And when we get leads that come in, so we market for motivated seller leads. And when those leads come in, we determine what's the highest and best use for this particular, you know, parcel or, or piece of a deal that we have. So are we going to rehab it and sell it retail to a, an end buyer? Are we going to sell it to another investor? Are we going to wholetail it, clean it up, clean it out, put it on the market? Or are we going to rehab it and keep it in our own portfolio? So those are kind of the four dispositions mainly that we look for. That's great. But in, yeah, in 2018, so that's kind of our, our method of generating cash and using that cash then to buy long-term assets. So we do it, you know, kind of a similar method to, I, I look at it like, everybody runs out of money eventually in this business, at least your own money. And then, so you have to look at methods of, cause if you got into this and you're like, Oh, I want to own rental properties and you use your own money and you put a down payment down, you buy a rental. 
you're going to run out not and it's not going to be very long before you're going to run out and you i so i say if you want to go full time in this business you have to figure out a way to supplement your acquisitions with cash producing events whether that's you're a broker, whether you work for a property management company or own a property management company, whether you're flipping houses, wholesaling, whatever those things are, generate some, or you're, you're syndicating and you're making an asset management fee or an acquisition fee. All those things generate cash that you can use to pay bills and then reinvest that cash into long-term assets. So that was the kind of the impetus of Red Ladder. And I started that business um, kind of on my own. And then when Brandon and I met each other, uh, like we really hit it off and had a lot of the same goals and values. And just the more conversations we had, we said, hey, let's take the jump together. It was kind of like Thelma and Louise, you know, like we couldn't each each one of us individually would probably wouldn't have had the balls to do it. But we the more we talked, the more we put a plan together and said, all right, let's do it. His We're, transition was quicker than yours, right? Like out of his full time. It well, we, we left at the same time. He actually moved to Omaha and bought a Homevestors franchise. So I don't know if he knew that, but he ended up uh, owning that for a little over a year. So he, it's We Buy Ugly Houses, right? So you can pay and get the rights to a territory. So in his, he had basically the Omaha rights and then they do the marketing for him and generate leads. And then you have to give them, you know, uh, they nickel and dime you a lot. I mean, it's a good program. Don't get me wrong. They have good training, but there's royalties and all kinds of fees. You get feed to death on a lot of those, those types of setups. Is that still around? It is. Yeah. Yep. Okay. So it's a franchise model. Yep. Franchise model. You go through a couple weeks of training, then they provide support and marketing and everything there. I mean, they have a good, good business model. Is there one per one in Omaha or there are, I think it's split now into the counties. So I know there is one in Omaha, but there's several in like Chicago and you know, the bigger cities are, they're all over the place. Does he wish he kept it? No, no. He, uh, he was scared about leaving yeah. because didn't want, you know, they have, they have some teeth to their non-compete and so forth and as they should, but you know, we basically found a way out of that. And, and, uh, when we hit the ground running, well, we hit the ground running. We had, we had deals in the pipeline. I had, I had a website that I had done pay-per-click advertising on for about a year. And that allowed me to do kind of a proof of concept. So I said, Hey, I want to make sure that I can exceed my, my W2 income with this before I make the jump. So I flipped about 20 houses in 2017 and made about double my, my W2 job income. Okay. And that, and that's, that's when we first met. So yeah. you were doing, you were working full-time and flip 20 houses. Yes. Yeah. But, but, and that was, I was by myself. So I had, and don't, and I wasn't going out swinging a hammer. Right. So I had the, I would, the leads would come in just like they do now. I'd answer the phone calls. I'd make the appointments. I'd go out, walk through the house. I'd get the deal under contract, close on it. And then I would have, you know, contractors that I'd worked with over the years and they would handle the rehabs for the most part. I could, you know, just trust them. And, and, uh, I had to, that's a lot with a uh, full-time job. Though. Yeah. So and, so that's, yeah, that, that was kind of how I got some traction there. And then got, you know, kind of got a proof of concept under my belt and said, Brandon, I already have this kind of infrastructure set up. We both weren't really happy with our careers and wanted to dive into this full time. Did, did adding a partner add a lot of freedom to you to focus on your skills or what did that look like? What did you, what were you able to peel off or did you not peel off anything and just went exponential in the number of properties you were doing or what that look like? Yeah, it, it was, I had a weird... I, I was thinking about this the other day when I when I left my job, it's a weird event if you've been doing it for a long time. And I had a little bit of a loss of identity and I didn't really know how to explain what I did for a living when people would ask me. And that I didn't realize that that was a part of me, if that makes sense. 
So you lose a little bit of your identity when you walk away from a career to pursue something that people don't really understand. Because if they're like, oh, what do you do for a living? Oh, I'm a real estate investor. Oh, that's that's cool. What's that? What yeah, does like, that mean? Exactly. You, know, you and, have to tie it you, into something. And how do you have that conversation on a Sunday night? Oh, everybody's going to work tomorrow. And you're like, well, it's kind of, what do you do? Real estate investing? Okay. Do you know what you're making? Kind of. Not really. <laughs> right. <laughs> to this day, uh, my boss at my law firm is like, uh, you left. Um, you're like a value add investor. Like he just doesn't, he still doesn't really even understand <laughs> what I do. It's, it's hilarious because people, I mean, then we surround ourselves with people at these meetups and these podcasts and like, I mean, it's extremely well known what all of us do, but not just us three, but like the investment world, all these options. But it's funny to hear people's like, you're going to leave the job to do that. It's kind of like when you go to a, my daughter is real. My oldest daughter is really into like manga and anime, right? So she's super into Japanese culture and like really, really into it. And we were talking about going to like Comic-Con or, you know, Anime-Con, like they have these different conventions or whatever. And that's her people, right? So she goes to that and everyone there, like if she's wearing stuff, you know, that's related to anime or or that that type of genre, they're her people. They get it. They're like, oh, that's an awesome shirt. You know what I mean? And it's the same thing with real estate kind of because that are going to these meetups and being on these podcasts and everything. These are our people. And I never had that like tribe for lack of a better term before I ended up pulling the trigger and get tying back to what you said about a partner. Um, I freed up, freed up my time to go and go to meetups and meet with people and just expand my network exponentially. So I, I, I dove into that right away is, is making relationships and friends with just people that are into what I'm into I love that. and my whole world opened up after that. I, love that. I mean, it's the surrounding yourself with what the, the, the five people, your network, your net worth, whatever, whatever you want to talk about. But when I first started, I did the same thing because everybody I worked with, nobody cared about real estate and they thought I was crazy for bringing it up. They're like, what are you talking about? We have the TPS reports to get done and we've got a meeting and lunch every day. That's an hour. Make sure I'll see you in the cafeteria. Let's go get our little tubs and, you know, go fill up. So that's why I had to start a meetup. I was like, there's got to be more people out there that I can actually have a conversation with besides how's the weather? Did you see the Broncos play? Oh yeah. Great game. And actually go deep on, you know, not only real estate, but Talking about bigger goals, I think everybody in the real estate community, we start talking about financial freedom, whatever that looks like. We're trying to build lifestyles. This is not, we're no longer in this cookie cutter box of nine to five where you check out. We may work all the time, but we love it because we're passionate about it. When you talk to people that aren't thrilled with their job, you know, I still have friends working with multiple companies. And once the clock hits five, it's just kind of stop and on to the next thing. You know, fortunately or unfortunately for us, it doesn't stop. But I think it also shows a passion and a purpose for what we're doing. But so. you can take a break at two or three, go pick up your kid from school. You can, you can do a lot of things, a lot of flexibility. Absolutely. I was, uh, it's funny. So I, I just got a call uh, a couple weeks ago from a, an attorney that was hired at the firm. And I, I'm not, I don't know her that well because I wasn't really there last year. She thought I was a real estate agent. She's like, I'm looking for a single family home. Yeah. <laughs> I get that. I get that all the time. There's more in real estate than just being a real estate agent. Yeah, it's it's hilarious. Just I love the way you describe that though, like being surrounded by your people. It just so happens that these kind of people, uh, the people we surround ourselves with, are extremely motivated and build these lives that we can do what we want and we can be dedicated to more than just clocking in, clocking out. Yeah, nobody in the the real estate industry, at least who we surround ourselves with 
we want bigger and better things in our life. We're always pushing the envelope, whether it's fitness, whether it's family, whether it's, you know, different types of health, you know, whether it's working on different financial goals. And you start bringing that into what is ingrained in your head is it's like, well, why would you want to do that? You have a great job. I just remember getting told by coworkers, are you sure you want to give up this gravy train? Remember, I was making $84,000 a year, um, but that's gross. And the government takes a lot of that. Next year, I started doing the property management. I was collecting a little bit of fees there, made some massive acquisition fees of like $3,000. And I think I grossed $60,000, but guess what I made? $60,000 yeah. because of all the tax write-offs. It was almost identical. And that, that, I mean, just blew my mind. I was like, mm. so are you kidding me? Uh, the government's taking all this and I can do this and not get that and actually build wealth in the background. So how was that's a huge eye opener. How was it your first year off or your first year without your W2? What was that? Was that a, did it end in this realization that you had made the greatest decision ever? Or was it more of a, what did I just do? I had well, kind of getting back to what I mentioned earlier, I had a little bit of a sense of loss and I know that sounds weird, but I, and I didn't really understand it until I had maybe a year or two removed from when it happened. So I had kind of this absence of a big part of my life that, that I was still doing real estate. And then I had a new partner. And, and so it was just a weird, it was a weird transition for me. But then I was like, well, I can go golfing. I, as long as I'm getting, I'm, you know, sticking to the plan and getting the work done that I know it's going to take to be successful in, in, in this new business. I have, I have a whole schedule now that I can do stuff with. So that was exciting for me is not having somebody's thumb on me all the time yes, on like, uh, on having to rush back home and, you know, I could take my daughter to school, but I always had to be back home for a conference call or, you know, whatever work activity was assigned. So that whole freedom of time was just, I mean, that made all the difference that outweighed any other, the worries or the feelings you had, the negative feelings you had yeah. in the past year. Yeah. But I wanted to mention one thing. So you, we were talking about being around your people and like how in real estate investing, especially the successful folks in it, tend to want more all the time, right? They have this, this drive, relentless pursuit of, good. of uh, you know, increased knowledge and, and self-actualization um, and, and just growth, continuous growth. But I, I tie this back to, do you guys ever meet somebody and you can know within probably 30 seconds of talking to them if they have that thing? Yes. You, do you know what I'm talking? And I, I don't know yes. how to fully describe this, but it's almost like we have a, a some genetic defect or like a extra chromosome or something <laughs> that, that it's like there's that drive. And, and when you see somebody that has it, you're like, ah, you've got it, too. It's 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 a weird it's a weird subset of people out there that have that thing that is really hard to describe that has the inner drive that just won't won't let good enough be good enough. It's the natural curiosity and the curiosity in the journey and being willing to do that in the process, not the end result. I, I think that's almost, you can see the people, I'll get asked, well, Colin, I just want to know how you did it because I want to have financial freedom so I can do whatever. I, I don't know where to start with that because what do you like? Do you like rainbows? Do you like dark? Do you like 
hammers? What do you, what do you like to do? Do you like talking to people? You, you have to hone in on your skills and know that there's going to be a journey with it and not focus on that end financial goal. If you do everything that's right, you'll get there. But if all you're focused on is the end, you're going to have a lot of trouble. You're not going to be excited about the process. You're not going to be wanting to learn. And if the only thing is, is getting that dopamine hit of a big deal, what's going to happen then? Because you haven't become an investor. You just got that cash. So you got lucky flipping a house or something. What, what are you going to do with it? It kind of brings us back to the beginning. And you are 100% correct. In 30 seconds, you can tell if there's somebody's actually interested in the business and being a part of it and having it encompass them in the lifestyle, or if they just want the payday and to go sit on the beach. Yeah. They, everybody seems to want to cheat code to it, but yeah. they want to skip over all the hard work. It's like, you know, overnight success, 10 years in the making. What I think people don't see, but the behind the scenes stuff, you know, when everybody is posting stuff on social media all the time now, and there's nothing wrong with that, but I think a lot of people get jaded and they say, well, they just have it easy and you know, like Levin wealth guys they're they're high level or whatever, but yeah, that must be nice. But it's like, they don't see that worked, you know, like a long time. We're, we're, we're texting each other at five in the morning, 10 at night, just to solve problems or talk about ideas or whatever. That's the stuff nobody sees. Yeah. It's like, it is a lot of work, but the fact that you enjoy it makes it, I mean, it's, I can't think of anything else I would rather be doing. We love to solve problems. I mean, that's what we do. We're problem solvers. We, we see an issue and we create a solution. Now, solving problems is one of the hardest things to do because we're solving complex problems typically. I mean, we're not inventing astrophysics, but we're, we're trying to take a property, a business, an owner, and fit it into our buy box and create our business plan through that. That involves, you know, a thousand different variables. And I think people get get hung up on that they're like oh it's too difficult um you know i can't solve that when when really that's where the value is it's solving problems and the more you do it those big problems become a lot easier because you've done it before and then you can create systems around it so yeah and it's so satisfying to solve those problems a real easy problem to solve is stocking a shelf at a grocery store which i had done and i was paid the right amount to stock a grocery shelf at the store to put up the cereal very simple task. When we're figuring out these creative solutions, how to take a property that's underperforming and create it, how it has a lot of crime and get rid of the crime there, those are complex problems. Um, I'm really curious, and I know kind of switching gears, and we can still jump on that, but I kind of want to know about your marketing funnel and how that looks and how that's evolved. Um, I know I've heard the you got to basically 99 no's leads to one yes, or 100, 100 offers leads to one deal but there's an actual funnel that goes along with that. And I know you're doing pay-per-click. I can't remember if you're doing mailers or direct mail. I don't know if you've done radio or anything, but I'm just kind of curious about that whole process and your different channels. Start with, talk, t tell us about how you started and then kind of how that's uh, changed throughout the years and what you're doing now. Mm, yeah, so I, I first started buying Mostly it was small, it was single families and small multifamilies. And what I would do is I, I had heard somewhere podcast book, something where you could buy lists of various, you know, owner situations on property. So you could get an absentee owner list. So for those of you may maybe not familiar with that, it's basically somebody owns a property that doesn't live at the property. So they're an absentee owner like listserv. Yep. So you can buy basically a list 
uh, I think I used list source at the time and then uh, a couple others, but I would buy this list of absentee owners and I focused kind of my, in my backyard. So Carter Lake, Iowa, where I live, I wanted to buy some rentals there just for ease of use. And then council bluffs, because I knew it, I had lived there as well. Council bluffs, Iowa. So I bought a small list of absentee owners and I just started, I would print the letter. I would sign it myself. I would write out the envelope. I would did all those things, right? Handwritten letters. That was how I started. So I, I would generate leads out of that. And every, you know, I would get calls and I would go out and I'd, I'd see a fixer upper. And the thing I, I, and I really have a knack for is meeting with people and understanding life problems and being an empathetic ear. So, and I think that ties back to my, you know, dozen of, you know, 20 years in recruiting. So I interviewed so many people over the years and I was exposed to so many different personality types and, and different problems and issues that people were having that I just got an, I, I just got good at it. So I used that as a, as kind of a skill set. And when I would meet with motivated sellers, I could understand their problems. And a lot of times the house is a, is a symbol of other things that are going on in their life. And they, they can somehow solve their, one of their problems by selling that house. And I tried to be there for them to do that. Um, that's how I started. So it was basically targeted. It was more the rifle approach. I would pick out like houses and small properties that I wanted. And then eventually I started doing it more en masse. So direct mail is how I started. So how many letters initially to get an appointment to get a sale approximately, if you had a guess? It would be a guess because I didn't do a good job tracking it. <clears throat> but I would say I would do a batch of, I would try to do 10 a day. That's how I would, that's how I would roll because it, I knew the amount of time it would take me to do it. I couldn't sit and do 300 of them at a time. And I know you have done that in the past and it's time consuming. It's exhausting. My yeah. hand was just numb. So I just tried to do, you know, keep it simple and do 10 a day. And I figured at the end of a week, I'd have, you know, 50 to 70 letters if I did it every, every single day. And at the end of the month, I'd have almost 300. So I would do, I would basically get probably a deal each month when I was doing that. So one out of every 300. Yeah. But that's awesome though. Cause if you think about that, in a month, you were able to get a deal. And how long did 10 letters take you? Probably between looking it up and, you know, cause there's, there's that too. Mm -hmm. like, like I would, I would find a property on the list and then I would pull it up on the assessor site, look at it. Is this in a street that I like, you know, I kind of, yeah. I would, I would vet the list. So like, like excluding the vetting part, it would probably take me, I don't know, 20 minutes. Okay. So 20 minutes. So what is that? That's 10 hours a month or so. Yeah. And what would your average deal make you when you were flipping it? 20,000, $20,000. So $240,000 a year, technically you could be making by sitting around for 20 minutes outside of the actual vetting process to go make a quarter million dollars a year. Yeah. That's it, man. Let's wrap the podcast up. That's that easy. <laughs> I mean, that's, that easy. that's wild. Ten it's just that easy folks. Ten, 10 hours of work. I mean, but, but it's the consistency of doing it. You're, you're actually swinging, you're, you're throwing the pitch. You're actually there doing it. And most people don't do it because they want to send out a 10,000 letters to every single person. And, and then they say it didn't, leads. it didn't work and it yeah. didn't work, yeah. but yeah. you didn't do it every day. So that that's awesome. How many seller appointments would you approximately go on? during of those 300 if you had a guess yeah i'd probably get about oh i'm just ballparking it here i'd probably go on five six seven eight appointments before i'd get a deal i'd make offers i would always make offers okay apologetic offers a lot of times and because those are driving everything so that's two hours right yeah so that's yep. uh, 16 hours now you're at 26 hours that month mm -hmm. yeah 
yeah, it, it does add up, especially if you have a full-time job, but it's manageable, right? I mean, we're not talking about huge blocks of time. If you do it in bite-sized pieces, you can, you can make some traction. 204, uh, 26 hours, there's still some more, right? The bank, signing off yep. on the debt, depositing the fat check. Call mm -hmm. it 40 hours a month. Right? That's yeah. 500 bucks an hour. My guess is you weren't making 500 bucks an hour at your no. W2 no. job. Decent guess. Yeah, probably near the end, I would say, just for reference here, I was probably making between $120,000, $130,000 plus benefits and all that before I left my W-2 job. So that's what my salary was up to by the time I left. Plus taxation. Gross. Plus, plus taxes. Yeah, gross. Yeah. yeah. For sure, gross. So you're bringing home 85, 95 or so. Yeah, probably. If yep. that, you know, by the time you factor, you know, 401k and all that, I know that's an asset, but yeah. So I, yeah, I got to that point and then eventually, um, it, I don't know if you want to talk about this too, but pay-per-click, I really dove into researching that because I didn't understand anything about it at all. And I listened to a bunch of podcasts. I did some research, bought books, bought marketing books and started to understand it, wrap my mind around it. And then I eventually put up a website and in 2017, that's when I did the the 20 flips, and that gave me the proof of concept. And that was all because of paperclip. Is there a book that shouts out to you off the top of your head that you read that helped with paperclip? Mm, good question. Or no a website. Not, or yeah, a, I'd have to go back and look. It was more podcasts that I got good good stuff out of related to real estate. And then walk us through with the paperclip, like exact exactly how that looks, how that works. Yep. So paperclip is basically um, think of there's there's two methods of ranking your website higher. One is pay-per-click. So basically you're buying your way to the top. And if you do that correctly, you could pretty much rank immediately number one or two, and you want to be number one or two. And if you're not, it's probably not worth doing one, two, or three, because when you Google, like say garage door repair, Omaha, you're going to have three ads that pop up at the top of your, your Google page. And those are pay-per-click ads. So they bought their way to the top. They want to be the the ad that it gets clicked on when somebody's looking to get their garage door repaired. I scroll by those. Yeah. And so the other side of that coin is SEO, which is search engine optimization. So the more content you put out there and the more positive reviews you get, it's kind of a, well, it's like a cauldron of ingredients that yeah. Google uses for their algorithms to determine how to rank things higher or not. And... SEO, you can't just put up a website and then like magic people come to you. You have to put content out there that people actually want to look at. And that's how Google completely redesigned their algorithm. They Google is saying, I am a human. I want to, I will rank you higher if humans are interacting with you like I think they should. So that's basically kind of their, their transition. How does it differ? Is it just the highest bidder gets the number one spot? Yes. So you can set an, okay. So with Google, we get we get probably the highest, I think out of any industry out there, pay-per-click costs more per click than any other industry in real estate investing. Is that just of recent or has that been just trending upwards? It's been as long as I've kept track of it. And that is because the profit margins are insane. It can, potentially, because think about it. If you're a dentist, let's say, and you want to rank highly, you're going to hit a point of diminishing returns with your cost per click. So if you're spending 50 bucks per click, by the time you actually get a customer out of that, your conversion rate is going to mean that it wasn't even profitable. You're making like two, you know, $3 an hour as a dentist. So 
in jobs like that, that have a time factor tied to it, you, you can only make a certain amount per hour in real estate. It's unlimited. I mean, really the track on that data is pretty important. It is. Yeah. So you have, and so like, we'll, we'll say with real estate investing in general. So if you're a motivated seller, right, you got a life issue that's going on. So you're getting divorced. You need to sell your house next week, or you have an estate sale or a hoarder house or whatever. And you say, sell my house fast. If you type that in, my ad will probably show up number one or number two and pay-per-click. And that's because I bought that phrase, sell my house fast, Omaha. I pay probably 40 bucks every time somebody clicks on that, wow. regardless of whether or not we, we it ends up because, right now. Yeah, <laughs> you stay out of there. But if regardless of, of whether people are actually becoming a lead of yours or a customer, you could just go on there right now, click on it, and it would I'm cost doing, me 40 bucks. Or, I'm not going to click on it. Yeah, we, we won't click on it. We'll, we'll save you that. But so it's expensive. And that's a barrier to entry that a lot of people are like, oh, well, I can't do that. I can't afford it. But you can send out a letter. You, you can. can. You've got enough for the paper and a stamp. So what, what is your typically, I don't know how you break down your budget and how that fluctuates. So you're looking at it annually because there's high and low seasons or what, what's... Uh, Yes. What are you spending? So, okay. On average, on a monthly spend, we probably spend about 6,000 bucks on pay-per-click um, as that marketing channel. And that is including the paper, uh, the Google costs, the Google ad costs themselves. So Google bills us, you know, every three days, like 500 bucks. And it seems like anyway. And then the management company that we use to manage the pay-per-click and keep an eye on basically the analytics is another, I think 500 we pay them a month. So it's about, about 5,500 and then uh, it's called Lead Farmers uh, PPC, I think is what it's called. Lead Farmers PPC. Yep, okay. yep. so uh, and that, the guy that runs that used to be part of Lead Propeller, which uh, they're, a, they're a competitor of Carrots, which is probably your gorilla, your 500 pound gorilla in that investor website template space. Uh, I, I think it's important to mention those. So those can be in the show notes. So you use list source, you use carrot, you use yep. lead propeller. And yep. What was the, what was the one you actually use? We use carrot right now. So okay. carrot.com is the back end of our website. This is so awesome to hear your, this story and how you've structured this, because I've always known you or thought to know you as doing a lot yourself, but you're, you're talking about all these different people you're utilizing uh, as part of your team. And this is, I mean, you, you certainly can delegate. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, man. Yeah. Uh, Cause you don't have any direct employees, but you're still using these other sources. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, I kind of have more of the, the model business model of, I use a lot of trades and contractors to handle things that a lot of other people might hire an employee for. And it, it works. Is it the best way to do it? I don't know because there's, as you guys know, there's problems with hiring staff also. Um, so it seems to work and, and Brandon and I have figured out kind of like what we're good at and what we're not good at and what we like doing and what we don't. So we kind of have a, it seems to work well for us and we're able to basically carve off, like I'm in charge of marketing. Um, and I, I do, I think a pretty good job at it. Um, Brandon handles a lot of the day-to-day -day operations and, um, like the, you know, accounting and bookkeeping and things like that. So he kind of, he manages more of the back office. I'm more of like do podcasts and meetups and things like that. And, you know, we seem to handle it pretty well. Um, you know, we both deal with contractors or like if there's a project, say, in like my neck of the woods, I'll handle it. He never even has to show up. So, but yeah, with, uh, so pay-per-click was, uh, 
huge catalyst for for my business and it gave me the guts to jump in with Brandon on that um, on our Red Ladder business. And then we just switched that website right over to Red Ladder because we already had the back end. When 2020 hit, uh, COVID, you know, came into the picture, we couldn't go on any appointments, right? So we couldn't go out and buy stuff because people weren't showing their houses. It was weird times. So what we did during that time was we hired an SEO consultant that basically gave us a playbook on how to improve our organic ranking, which is what you were talking about, Chris, so that you skip over the the pay-per-click ads and go right to who who ranks, who's the most naturally highest ranking business, and then you look at them. So I ripped down basically our whole website and redesigned it, uploaded all of our new content, blog posts, all that stuff during that time. So I tried to make the most of the you know three, four months that we were out of the picture for showings. So I did a redesign on that and it really improved our ranking. Now I didn't, we kind of picked back up before I had the chance to finish off a lot of the stuff. So it's kind of like maybe three fourths of the way finished. So it's not where it should be, but it's it still works. Okay. So mm -hmm. you were talking about earlier, you were saying 2008, 2009, 2010, you kind of blew up. Yep. That, that was kind of the, the year of making it rain while the whole world was crumbling. Um, so I guess I want your thoughts, you know, the Fed's just raised rates again, 75 basis points, saying there's going to be another hike, you know, we're, we're in a recession, you know, two fiscal quarters in a row, mm -hmm. we're down, we're in a recession, inflation is said to be what, eight, between seven and 9%, depending on what, what poll you read and how you're looking at it and what factors. What, what do you see is upcoming or are, are you using what you learned during that time to kind of kind of shift your marketing and also your disposition process. Cause you mentioned the four different ways, the four different utilizations of those assets that you get under contract or start working with. So does that shift now for you? Good question. Big question. And it's on our minds, you know, constantly here with the rate hikes that have, that we've been experiencing, it certainly appears that the fed wants the housing market to go backwards. That's how it appears. And I think you have what you have right now is a lot of people and, you know, correctly, incorrectly, whatever, but a lot of people are uncertain and they're frozen. So, and when I say people, I mean, both people that own homes that normally would have sold, but they're afraid to sell because they maybe had an interest rate of three on their mortgage on their primary home. And if they go buy another one, that's going to be, you know, what, seven now? I mean, it could be. Mm-hmm. So we have a lot of, you have some hesitancy there, but I mean, let's face it, we don't have a cure for the housing um, lack of inventory that we've had as a result of the great recession. So during that time, there was a glut of foreclosures and you had all this inventory as a result of builders basically cranking out starter homes, right? And you had a lot of those builders go under and you had about a 10 year period where they, those builders were no longer there. So there's this void in the market and a hesitancy of those builders to crank back up. So they, they had this lag in housing inventory that never got fixed. And it will now, if things continue how they are, it will never get fixed. So something drastic has to happen, whether it's government intervention and they basically force the issue on cranking out affordable housing by making it so much so attractive to builders that they can't say no, or technology improves at a pace to where they can now make that type of product with 3D printing or or some other type of tech that's going to come out and uh, and fix the you know at least to a point fix the housing inventory. But I think I, I look at how things are now. A lot of real estate investors are like, "Whoa, pump the brakes here because interest rates are up. I can't find anything to cash flow and so forth." But 
if you if your rents are actually keeping up with the incremental increases in interest rates, your cash flow shouldn't be as affected as it normally would in a stagnant rental market. However, it's still a thing and you have to underwrite deals more carefully and you have to make lower offers. And I think you're seeing a softening in the market right now that will allow the investor that's you know pretty savvy to to buy deals at a bigger discount to offset the the hike in you know the the lack of cash flow generated by the hike in interest rates. Wow, so we have no idea. Yeah, pretty much. Because <laughs> I, I I hear all that and I just I don't I don't understand necessarily where it can go. I mean, I obviously the three D printing is going to be really expensive, so that's not something that's going to be a short term play. Um, no one's going to leave. Uh, not a lot of people are going to leave their unbelievable rates they fixed over the last couple of years. That's going to be tough. But the supply, but there's there's nothing out there. The, the the population, like you said, increases is faster than the ability to or the or the building or the providing of homes to move into. And even if people try to catch up, the cost to build those homes, I, I just this is going to be very interesting. So I think the I think the best way to look at it is maybe just to be extremely cautious. Maybe not going to be as easy over the next couple of years. Yeah. And I think, you know, this is the type of climate where I think people are trying to hold their breath and say, where are we exactly? And then when things kind of, when the dust settles a little bit, if the feds like, okay, we're done with interest rate hikes, I think then we'll see some activity pick up and people will kind of like take a collective breath and say, okay, this is the new normal. Now they'll start making decisions on selling their home and moving into a different one. And maybe you'll see some investors that pick back up with buying activity, but. Okay. So now that we've looked in the crystal ball and looked at it 78 different ways, <laughs> what is the answer to the question? What is red ladder going to do differently over the next six months? Do you think? Um, underwrite more carefully. Um, I think there's going to be more deals on the MLS that get stale. So I think we're going to basically implement more of a on market offering or an on market strategy of supplementing our deal flow. And I think there's going to be a void by now we didn't talk about this and, and we won't have to belabor the point, but they also recently outlawed wholesaling in in the state of Nebraska, uh, where you can get stiff fines if you have any marketing of equitable interest in a property and you're not a licensed agent. That is that is creating opportunities for a business like mine. We're not licensed agents, but we close on every deal. We don't wholesale. So we're getting more leads that come in on deals that maybe we wouldn't have had the opportunity to look at before. So I think there's people exiting the market um, and I think it's freeing up us to be able to make moves that maybe we wouldn't have before. So I think we're also gonna have foreclosures and um, that are, they're gonna start ticking back up again. So that's gonna, I mean, we haven't seen foreclosures like, like they were in 2008, 9, 10. That was, that was everything I bought back then. I haven't bought a foreclosure since Nom. <laughs> I don't, I don't even remember the last one I bought, you know, it's just weird. So I think there, I think we're going to have different, um, a different climate with those things coming into the, you know, into the forefront. Do, do you create any contingency plans on the assets that you're purchasing and possibly flipping because rates have just been increasing and, you know, in a couple months from now, we could get another rate increase and a big bump, which then reduces the value of your asset. I mean, th this is why Chris and I like the buy and hold, and so do you as well, of multifamily, is we can ride out the interest rates hi rate hikes. Although the paper value of the asset technically goes down, we still have the same debt as we did before. We have the same terms. 
and we're likely increasing the rent along the way. So we're, we're still, we're still okay because of the terms that we actually locked in. So with red ladder, are you, when you're doing your underwriting, are you upping it? Are you looking at the interest rates and upping it by a point or two? Or how, how, how does that look? How do we stress test it? How are you stress testing it? And what happens if you do have to keep it? Say it, say it becomes a dud. Do you, do you go from a wholesale or not a wholesale, a wholetail to a flip to a buy and hold model or wh- wh- where's the. Yeah, the, that's a uh, great question. And in different environments. So like when you look at the economy as a whole or the housing market as a whole, in times like this, you have spiking interest rates, low housing inventory. Uh, you've got low foreclosures, low evictions because of the fallout from COVID and a lot of the government programs that were put out. And if you look back to say, you know, 2008, 9, 10, that was a completely different environment where making certain types of moves made a lot of sense at the time. Wholetailing was not a thing then. You had to make, so the, you had foreclosures everywhere. There were more deals than you could shake a stick at. It was just finding banks to finance you and having the cash available to do it. And then actually being able to sell your product for what you think you could, because there was more time on market, more, you know, more inventory. And at that time you had to flip. So you couldn't just buy a property, clean it out, clean it up, throw it on the market. And then it's a bidding war. It wasn't like that at all. You're lucky to get an offer and you fought hard when you got that offer. So you had to do inspection, you know, home inspections were on every single sale that you had. And you had inspection contingencies where you had to fix a bunch of little stuff at the end of the thing. So you're shelling out money, right? But you had to rehab a lot. So that's the difference in an environment where things are going well and there's zero inventory and there's bidding wars. You don't have to have a pretty house. So I think we've been, you know, I wouldn't say spoiled, but we did this. We were making hay while the sunshine in the last, you know, four or five years because the lack of inventory, the, you know, people just making insane offers on stuff. So we just needed a house. It didn't matter if it was the house. Now, when you get inventory to answer your question, we, we are very selective about which ones we're going to take and do a full rehab and sell to an end buyer. And we're looking at that very hard now. So I think the right properties will still wholetail and sell fine, but you have to have them in good areas. You can't buy in the hood now and have it be okay because everything's selling. So I think, you know, rising tide lifts all ships, but in a market like this, that's turning the first thing to go south is rougher neighborhoods, the values. So being more selective about the neighborhoods, rehabbing more than we probably would have in the last couple of years and uh, dispositioning things that way so that we're protected on the back end by um, having a, a really good product compared to what everybody else has in the neighborhood. So those are the differentiators, right? And the, and the ones that we do take into inventory, we're looking at it with a long lens of, okay, we have a specific part of town or a couple parts of town that we really wanna be concentrated in around the med center. I've talked about this, where they're doing you know $2 billion, 10,000 job project there over the next several years. We wanna buy as much as we can around there, higher end rentals, focus on the medical you know tenant community and uh, Dundee area. So we like both of those areas, kind of midtown-ish around here. So pick up, uh, pick up more rentals along the way, flip more, um, probably less wholetailing and uh, take advantage of the, you know, absence of other wholesalers in the marketplace and, and do those things to fill the void. But adjust, like that ability yep. to adjust your investment strategy is huge. And it's it, it's not the same in a lot of sectors of, with people's money, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Are you still utilizing other people's money when you're doing this stuff? Most, 
Well, yes. Uh, when If it's other people, it's a bank. So we have a pretty sizable line of credit at a local bank here, Five Points Bank. Give them a shout out. Uh, they have been with us from the beginning. So we've got a good credit line with them. So we can basically go out and make cash offers, buy houses on the line of credit, and then do whatever we're going to do with them and then either sell them or keep them. And we'll, if we do keep them, we'll basically quick claim it into a, a different LLC that we have for holdings. And then uh, we'll refinance, get our money back, rinse and repeat. What bank are you going to do for l- lack of seasoning requirements? What's your how, you, how do you refinance them so quickly? Yeah, so American Interstate Bank out of Elkhorn, they have two branches. Uh, Dan Palmquist, there's a stud. Love that guy. We've done. I've I have done before. Brandon and I got together, and then after we got together, collectively, probably I don't know, fifty loans there, maybe. Wow, no uh, seasoning. No seasoning. Yeah. So we'll click. In fact, they will actually do the quick claim for us at the bank while we're doing the refi. So, um, I will note that <laughs> Dan's getting, a yeah, lo- love those guys. No, I love working with them. Uh, Malvern bank. So they're a, a small town bank from where, where I'm from in Southwest Iowa. They, uh, were almost solely responsible for funding most of my early deals. So without them, I couldn't, I wouldn't be here. That's awesome. So they were a shout out to Malvern bank. Uh, Jay Burdick is the owner and president and Kate McGann is my, um, EVP or whatever her title, you know, everybody's a VP at a bank, yeah, but yeah. they're, they're, phenomenal to work with there love them so shout out to those those two banks for sure what about investors into red ladder oh um yeah we have done that in the past when we before we had our line of credit set up so we borrowed you know some family money to get started and then you know paid that back pretty quickly after we got the line of credit set up for the most part we're we're funded with banks and then other businesses that that i'm in including liquid lending um which i don't know if we'll talk about that at some point but that uh that we definitely use investor money so we can give good returns on uh on that and you know we can redeploy it and play arbitrage on the on the on the money okay so let's talk about the uh other business that you've started recently liquid lending solutions tell me a little bit about that lls ah 2020 and so so let me backtrack here this isn't just like a a softball because i was an afterthought so i'm actually curious how all this got started yeah you're the you're you're the plus one for the listeners i'm a part of the business they just decide to well what happened was is right before they finalized it they realized holy cow we need a big swinger on the team we need a big badass and they actually that's when they brought me in and then we and then we started the business we just had to figure out out who that was so we called chris instead (laughs) We had to write it out with crayons for him. It's like, oh, now I get it. <laughs> Verbally uh, didn't work. Thanks. So. thanks, guys. So liquid lending, after a couple of fits and starts with pursuing hard money lending as a as a business, really more as like a, a side way to make money, Brandon uh, Tauber and I, my partner with Red Ladder, we had kicked around doing that, even approached a couple of banks about, you know, could we get a credit line, reloan that money? And they're like, <laughs> no uh, see your, see your way out. Uh, so we were kind of like, okay, well, I guess that's not going to work. Um, we, so we had, we had thought about doing it basically as a way to make, you know, good interest on extra money we had built up with red ladder with our transactional business one day. uh, So Colin and I would periodically just grab lunch. So we just like impromptu doing, do anything for lunch. And I'll be like, I'll grab lunch and bring it to his office. And we'll just sit there and talk for an hour and eat lunch or whatever, go on a walk. And so I called him one day, I think if I remember this right, correct my correct my memory here. But and I was like, hey, you want me to grab lunch? And he said, yeah, actually, I'm just uh, getting ready for a meeting, but go ahead. And I was like, who are you meeting with? And what are you guys talking about? And he said, well, I'm meeting with um, with Peter uh, about hard money lending. And I was like, 
interesting. I'm like, mind if I, you know, I'm a fly on the wall here because I've I've talked to Brandon about this. So I grabbed uh, some pokey bowls and brought them to your office. And then we sat and talked about starting a hard money lending business. So that was the original way that we basically talked about it and then kind of fleshed it out a little bit more and just said, okay, who else might make sense to include in on this? And so obviously I reached out to Brandon, Colin reached out to his bro-in-law uh, or bro for life, I should say. Thank you. For Chris. And uh, that's basically how we decided to do this. We all, you know, ponied up some money of our own and then grew it from there. Yeah. And, and what I think is interesting is we started it with, I, I know, so I had some cash sitting around, but you used a line of credit or that's initially what's in there. And so yeah. we found a bunch of different ways of access to the capital and basically an ability to arbitrage. Yeah, I had, I think, a credit line of about, I don't know, like 300 grand or something like that. So yeah, I tapped into 250 of that as the way to basically, I took an advance off the credit line, which was, I think, you know, whatever, 4% at the time, and then use that as the seed capital to start liquid lending. So we started with what a million dollars originally, and, uh, and then started borrowing private money and then loaning that out because we grew so quickly, we kept running out of money because of the network of other investors that we knew that were constantly bringing us, you know, potential deals to lend on. So explain what LLS does. So liquid lending solutions is a hard money lender in primarily the Midwest. Uh, we have several states that we've done loans in. We're based out of Omaha, Nebraska. We underwrite basically flips and uh, burr uh, projects. So buy, rehab, rent, refinance, repeat. So basically people are taking down deals and they either can't or don't have the uh, time to work with a bank or traditional financing methods in order to take a deal down. Or maybe they have capital deployed in a whole bunch of projects and they just need a quick solution. So basically if you're going to flip a property, you get it under contract, you approach us and you say, hey, uh, we have, a, I need a hundred thousand dollar loan here's the deal. And they, you know, describe the deal to you. And they're like, here's what we're going to, here's what we're buying it for. Here's what we're going to do to it. And here's what it's worth at the end. And then we take a look basically at the scope of work they've got, um, their experience level. And then we make a decision on whether we're going to fund the deal, but we, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but we underwrite basically every deal. Like we're going to be the ones buying it since we're all real estate investors. And if we don't feel there's enough margin in there, or if it's too big of a risk, then we don't fund it. And we generally recommend that the borrower shouldn't probably do the deal either. Yeah, I think because it's not good. My filter is really is that we would not lend on a property unless we would want to own it ourselves. Yep. Because I mean, we'll lend 100%. And that's typically what it is of the acquisition cost of or the purchase price. And I remember recently, we had somebody approach us and they're like, No, that's fine. Because the deal was was tight. And they're like, Well, you can just lend 75% of it. And we're like, No, because unfortunately, we think you're going to go upside down on this deal or at best break even I would recommend not purchasing it. Yeah, it's so it's been interesting because it's a dynamic change when you're on the lending side of the table as opposed to the borrower side of the table. But it's been fun and uh, it's it's been a I mean, this has been a crazy growth business for us over the last couple of years. I think we've done what probably approaching 250 loans yeah. and most of them have been to people we know personally. Uh, we've also grown our network to, you know, Des Moines area, uh, Michigan, Illinois, uh, Missouri, Florida. Now we just did a loan there. So it's been fun and we've met all kinds of new people and really good operators. And that's one thing I've learned, I think, most out of being in the hard money lending business. 
I would say we probably made some not great decisions in the early early on days about loans we should or shouldn't do. We probably took a bigger risk than we should have on and and we've had a lot of success. I think we probably got bailed out maybe a little bit on, uh, on you know from the market on some of these. But I think now um, it's been fun because we've met some really kick-ass operators that really know what they're doing. They know how to underwrite deals. They have a good system of uh, operations in place and the right people, and that's been fun. Just meeting ballers in other markets. What's that's the been a total lot of that you, the LLS has lent out? As far as volume, loan yeah, volume? Otherwise. Oh, that's a good question. I should know that, but I don't. Do you know? No, I was hoping you. I did. thought it was like <laughs> around twenty-five. I think it's up to. Million? I think it's up to thirty-three million. I was going to say. I know we surpassed wow. thirty. Okay. Yeah. Wow. So thirty-three million dollars loaned in uh, in a couple of years. In the first probably six months, we were still in ramp up stage. So yeah, a lot of a lot of this, one and two million that we had total. Yeah, and we capital. And, and you know, I'm sure you guys would, would agree with this because we we've had you know a business coach and we've done uh, you know kind of a revamp of roles and responsibilities. We've had a new hire, which has been great. Um, we've had people that help get us off the ground. They're no longer in the picture, which has been, uh, you know, right of passage with the business, but we've learned a lot along the ways. And I think we've transformed kind of the way that we've handled things. Um, it's been fun, man. I like, I love this business. Yeah. Liquid, liquid lending is a lot of fun. Hard money is, is, uh, if you can make a go of that, it's fairly easy to set up, but you got to know what you're doing and you got to have a good, you know, attorney in your corner that could do quality research and, and have good turnaround on, you know, decisions that you need to make. And you got to have the right people that know how to underwrite deals and be responsive. Yeah. And I think also, I mean, the amount of people that were helping with the hard money lending business, we still utilize hard money. Right. I mean, it's a quick solution. I give this people because, you know, right now, currently, because I don't know if rates will be 18% next year, just Probably. organically, but uh, currently we're lending out at 18% interest only, you know, a hundred percent of the deal. And everybody's like, oh my gosh, 18% and their eyes go, you know, start crossing. And I'm like, hey, but listen to this. If you're buying this in cash and you plan on refinancing it soon, if you're going to go with the bank, typically they're going to want an appraisal. They're going to charge you a half a point or a point anyways. And some of those fees almost equate, maybe even surpass what you're going to pay in the interest on that before you go refinance anyways. And this is a quicker option and banks are going to like it more. This is, this is some banks. They're going to see you bought it at cash. They're not going to know the entire process of what you've done in the interim. And then you're going to put it on the bank's books at the new valuation, thus burring out of it. So it's going to give you that speed. And I think last year, what we really saw was just deals selling for over asking. Everything was a cash offer. And even though you were a great borrower, you had all the banking relationships and you gave the offer of exactly what they asked for, somebody would come in with cash and beat you. So if you didn't have access to that or that ability, you're going to lose the deal. So, I mean, you're going to be net negative from the inaction. You're paying for a service because not only can you close in just a few days, but you also don't have to bring money down. Well, and here's the deal, too. I think a lot of people, and I know several like this still, that uh, they would rather partner with somebody that has money, have that partner loan them the money, and then they don't do anything else. That partner doesn't. And at the end, they split it 50-50. So they're splitting a $30,000 profit. They're giving 15 grand out the door when they could have used a hard money loan and had you know three months worth of interest at 
1500 bucks a month. So you just underwrite it like a line item and don't worry about the fact that it's interest. And yes, is it higher than a bank gives you? Yeah, but who cares if it allows you to take down a deal, get it done quickly and get it off the books and sold and then make your profit move on. That way you're not, you know, hamstringing yourself by giving up 50% of your profits to a partner that doesn't do anything. Well, and our, well, I have a partner. Yeah, oh, I was, you beat me to it. <laughs> Uh, I, I think that the speed though too, right? So our average loan length, you know, LLS lends out for six months at a time. Mm -hmm. Um, rarely does anybody hold it for six months. Oftentimes they don't want to because it's 18%, but, but they're actually through their business plan. Our average loan is just short of four months. Yes. I mean, you're not even going to close with a local bank for at least 60 days, especially yep. recently. So I, have you your, yourself used hard money? You know, I don't. I think we did one. I think we did one deal through group. Red Ladder, yeah, yeah. That uh, that we borrowed from Liquid Lending. And that's yeah. how. I mean, that's how I got started. I mean, you could call it hard money. It wasn't an eighteen percent, but when I first got started, even as a practicing attorney, I was borrowing money, six digit money from people in the double digits. I'd just pay them for the money because, I mean, without that, it allowed you to do the deal. I right? Had to, it's the only way I could do the deal. And so I think that it's it's oftentimes unfortunately looked upon negatively, but. The the reason our business has grown so much is that it we're partnering with some, like you said earlier, some badasses who know what they're doing. We have some people who have taken down 10, 15 loans already themselves because they themselves have a business. So I think it's all about how you use it. it. It's leveraging. I mean, all they're doing is they're leveraging our capital. We're use, leveraging their expertise. We're getting compensated for it. It gives them a, an ability to grow their business. I mean, you can't get stuck on what this costs. I mean, if we looked at the amount of fees and stuff we pay to banks, et cetera, but the, the delta on the upside is where it's at and what our leverage is and what our return is on that investment. It doesn't, you, you can yeah. say something costs something, and I, I think that's where you get stuck at, but it's not a cost. It's, it's an equity upside. There's an upside to it, and that's really what it is. So not, think, not many bankers understand it. And then a lot of people that I know, but you know, family, personally, your friends, they don't understand like, how is someone borrowing for 18%? But the ones that the people that understand it, the people that we roll in circles with, they're like, this is amazing. I can find a house and just close on it tomorrow for $250,000 without a penny. Because <laughs> you're making money out of nowhere. Obviously, you have to do the work, et cetera. But you, you are creating something with zero of your own dollars. You can be broke, but have the experience and find the deal or partner with somebody that has the experience. And you can get this done. You can create something out of nothing. And this actually just flows into the deal. You, I think it was you said earlier about how one of the things that it's, and you said you started your investment career this way is helping people or finding a way to solve problems. You said you started with helping people. And it's not that people borrowing from uh, LLS or liquid lending solutions are, they need help necessarily in like a, div a divorce way or a, but they, they need the dough. And you're mm -hmm. not going to do 10 or 15 deals at 200, $250,000 a piece without, without someone bringing the money. I think that, that just kind of circles back to helping people or solving problems. It's a huge team thing. Well, I think I, I remember when I, I didn't know a hard money lender. And that's the only reason why I would not have used one before mm. now, uh, because they're, they just, you, you know, they're like some dude in a back room back in the day, yeah. like, you know, like a pawn shop, yeah. you know, that's how I, I was like, well, who are these mysterious people that have, you know, loans out there that they'll give on Loan properties? Sharks. Yeah. But I, and so there was just a, I had a lack of knowledge, a lack of wherewithal to be able to find the people that could do that type of uh, loan. Otherwise I would have used them. And, and now it's so easy or so much easier. You just, 
you know, you can go to a meetup or better yet, sit in your living room or sit in your uh, bedroom and, and get on Facebook and be like hard money lender in Omaha. And then you'll probably be able to find some or, or multiple or whatever market you're in. And you can, you know, talk to them and find out what loan programs they have. It's never been easier. So I think uh, people have the no financing excuse. I think that's only because they haven't researched this to a point where they understand it. And if you understand it, then it becomes a tool in your toolbox in a way for you to take down deals that you normally wouldn't be able to otherwise if you're waiting for traditional financing. Well, if you utilized a hard money lender in Red Ladder, if Red Ladder utilized yep. that, how, walk us through the whole business plan. So we have, in, in Red Ladder, we have a credit line and at times we bump up on the limit, right? So we have a, a, a finite amount of capital available. And in our business, when we're marketing to motivated sellers, we get a bunch of leads that come in. And it just so happens that sometimes a lot of those will come in all at once. So we, we're very heavy on our credit line, right? So we don't want to turn the, like, you can't just stop your business. So we looked at, okay, what other ways can we continuously keep adding inventory and dispositioning it to keep the, the train moving forward? And, and, and hard money is one of the easiest ways to do that. So it's basically taking what you're already doing, plugging that into the scope of, of, uh, of, of the thing. And when we're out of, of capital, you can either borrow from, you know, your own funds, banks, you know, private money or hard money and hard money is the quickest and easiest way to do it. Is it more than you would pay in interest? Yes. If you went to a, a line of credit at a local bank, but who cares if you're able to take a deal down in three days. Yeah, but to what Colin said earlier, I mean, overall, what you end up paying after it's all said and done through the closing fees and the waiting amount of time, or the fact that you may not even get the deal because this person wants to sell you their home in five days, the bank's not going to close for you. You might have lost the entire profit, the entire yeah. $20,000 profit you talked about earlier. It's like not wanting to partner with anybody. And that's what we are at LLS. We're a partner. That's like somebody has a deal or you have the capital, but you don't want to do it because you want the whole deal. We talk about this the whole time. Uh, do you want a full grape or you want a quarter of a watermelon? You want a quarter of the watermelon. There's a lot more substance to it. You can get a lot more out of it. You share it because of the partnership. If you just want to do those things, then you can go. And there's nothing wrong with this, but you work at your W-2, you spend, you save every dollar, you get enough for a down payment, you use that, you sit on it, you keep saving up the money and you go buy another property. And there's nothing wrong with that. But, but if this is your business and you want speed, having access to capital, whether it's hard money, whether it's private lenders, whatever it is, it's going to give you the ability. It's also going to remove roadblocks from you. I think at the beginning, you're starting your every everybody that starts is limited to the dollars that's in their checking account. And that's how they view the lens of real estate. I can't buy multifamily. I don't have $100,000 for a down payment. I've got $20,000. So my limit is a $100,000 property. And that's it. And that's typically where it stops. Uh, amen on that. And and I think to real world this, let's say that you have the opportunity to buy, a, let's call it a $100,000 house, right? And you know, because you did the research, you have a, a motivated seller, they need to close in four days, okay? Like, let's say you have a hundred grand and you don't have it all. Your bank is gonna require an appraisal. So it's gonna take 30 days for them to be able to fund it. You don't have a line of credit that has enough juice in it to be able to buy it for a hundred grand. What are your options? Your options are partner with somebody, find private capital or get hard money. Those are about it, 
right? Or go knock off a bank and, you know, take that. Yeah. So let's say you, let's say you use a hard money lender and let's say it's 18% like LLS uh, charges. Okay. So that seems uh, like a big number for every hundred thousand dollars you borrow, you're paying $1,500 a month in interest. So let's say you take this deal down and you end up making $20,000. All right. It's not a huge profit, but it's decent for a hundred thousand dollar property. So you buy it, you take the deal down, you do whatever you're going to do to it. You sell it. Maybe you keep it. Either way, so let's say you sell it and you sell it and you make um, $17,000 instead of 20. And your only other alternative was you pass on the deal. Would you take $17,000 if it cost you three grand? Yeah, absolutely. Who cares? That's it's a line thing. item at that point. You just factor it into the whole pot of numbers that you got to deal with when you're doing a flip. Yeah, and you can yeah. also keep the faucet on for marketing because typically somebody will be like, okay, I'm out of capital. And certainly there, there becomes a bandwidth issue of scaling too fast. But typically I see somebody with that $20,000 goes and does it, but then they have these other leads coming in and they have to pass on that because they're like, oh, I'm not going to borrow that. You know, that's too expensive. So they basically shut down. They become unfamiliar with the market until they get that cash back. And they're like, okay, I'm ready to buy again, but they haven't been working on their lead sources. So it, it just slows down the entire process of having that, that capital restriction when there are options out there, as long as it fits into the deal. It's taking the governor off of your capital uh, availability. Exactly. Like you, you're, like you said, it's a restriction on your available capital stack. If you are, if you aren't using hard money and you're in the business of marketing for real estate deals. I mean, we talked about it when we first started, this is it's important to, there's a difference between good debt and bad debt. And this is just a prime example of, of great debt. Yeah. yeah it's, and so that I, I am ex as excited about this business, if not more than I am Red Ladder, which I've been doing for a long time. And that's the thing, you know, you get in real estate and, you know, kind of routine after a while, you do the same thing over and over and over again. Like you flip house, flip house, flip house, buy a deal, buy a deal. And this has been fun and, and interesting and learn, you know, meeting a ton of new people that way. So that's why I, I, I like that part of this too. I like, you know, just meeting ballers out there. I mean, that's, that's what it's all about. Yeah. And to go back to the creativity, and I think it'd be great if we kind of jump to this, unless we're, unless we still have more, more topics for LLS is the creativity with deals that can be accomplished to remove all sorts of roadblocks and some of its capital, some of its partnerships. Um, so what's a, what's a creative deal that you've done? Oh, well, I, I, I have a couple, I mean, that you guys are both involved in, so we can talk about that if that, if yeah. that works. So, uh, the first one being the papillion deal, um, about what, two years ago, I think I had a friend of mine call me that had a, he has a whole bunch of multifamily and he's a lone wolf. He's never partnered with anyone, does a lot of the work himself. He owns, I don't know, probably almost 200 units and all his, and you know, a bunch of them are paid off. Like he's, he, he has been my mentor indirectly for a long time about multifamily, bought my very first multifamily from him. And whenever he has called me and said, I have a deal, because he's to a point where he doesn't need, like, you know, he's busy enough and he doesn't want to do big projects anymore. So sometimes he'll call me and he'll be like, I have a deal. This was brought to me. You should look at it. I have bought every single one. Every time he has brought something like that to me, I bought it. What's his phone number? Yeah, you <laughs> you're never getting it. Uh, no, he, but great dude. Uh, his name's Paul Lena. Uh, good, good friend. Uh, like he's just knows so much about real estate. I mean, he's forgotten more than I know. And he called me about this deal and it was a 24 unit uh, apartment complex townhome style, which we love uh, because of how the, the setup and the layout is. And he said eight of the units are down. 
Uh, the owners live in a town that's 45 minutes away. They originally bought this. They lived a lot closer. They thought they were going to do it HGTV style and it was going to be their retirement hobby, but they're burned out. It got away from them because one unit went vacant, then another one went vacant, then another one went vacant, then they had a flood, then they had somebody not pay rent. It just kind of like was a snake eating its own tail after a while. And he's like, I would take this, this deal on. He goes, but I just don't have, like, I can't do it right now. There's too much going on. So I looked at it and I was like, oh my God, this is, this is a killer deal. And I just saw the potential of it, but I looked at it and I probably could have taken it down by myself with, with my available funds, but man, I did not have the bandwidth. Thanks for not taking it down yourself. Yeah, you're you're welcome. (laughs) So I just, I looked at it as, man, this is like 40 minutes from my house. I'm going to have to manage eight rehabs all at once, multiple contractors This is going to suck basically. And so I remember, I, I think I called you, I don't know where I was driving, but I called Colin and I told him about the deal and he's like, yep, I'm in. Like I barely even got any, <laughs> any words out. He's like, yep, I'm in. And, uh, and then all of a sudden you're in, because I remember I was like, well, I don't know if, you know, Chris want to be involved or whatever. And he's like, he's like, hang on, he's in. And I was like, I didn't, I didn't even, this wasn't official yet. So I just saw my equity going from hundred percent to 50 to like 70 or to, you know, 25 and like a span of five minutes. But so I was kind of in that mindset where I was like, oh man, I, I'm like Gollum with Lord of the Rings, you know, like, oh my precious, I, I don't want to give that away. And then now that I have, we have been through this. So we, we, I negotiated directly with the sellers, got it under contract, negotiated a $200,000 seller carry back. So basically that reduced significantly the amount of money we would have to bring as a down payment. Then you guys introduced me to one of your uh, partners on other deals who has access to quite a bit of money through private capital. So he brought basically the entire down payment. And not only that, but we all took an acquisition fee of what 10 grand, I think is, I mean, that wasn't a big fee, but 10,000 bucks. And then I also gave my friend that told me about the deal, $10,000, which he had no idea what that was going to happen by the way. That was rewarding. Oh yeah. Yeah, I walked in his office, handed him that. And he's like, he put it right in his pocket. I'm like, aren't you even going to look at it? (laughs) Like, are you going to give me the satisfaction at looking at it? So he pulls it out of his pocket and he's like, dude, like he hit big, it was, so that, that was really cool. Like I, that was, a, that was a cool moment. Oh, sure. So yeah, we got that under contract and then, uh, the seller carry back was great. Uh, we got it, we had really good interest rate that you guys, uh, lined up with a credit union here, Chris did. And then, um, once all the units were repositioned, not only did we not have to put any of our own money in the deal, but we refinanced and got what? $30,000 a piece back. Does that sound right? And then we did a cost segregation study. So this is a little bit, you know, a little bit more advanced, but we basically did a cost segregation study. And then we each were able to get an $80,000 credit as a result of that cost seg study that we were able to apply to our own, you know, tax situation. Uh, uh, Write-offs. Yeah, write-offs. And uh, yeah, sorry, not not tax credit, but write-offs. So, and so it's just the gift that keeps on giving. And we've had, you know, distributions of the cash flow and it's still cash flow as well. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that was a, I, and now I look at it and I'm like, I am really dumb for even considering for a second that I should have handled that whole thing by myself. Bought it for 1.8 and 1.7, 1. 1. 1. 1.7. And then it recently appraised for 3.2, 3.3. Yeah. And we put 300 or so thousand into it. And so I remember looking at the rent roll, it was about $11,000 a month. I think they were grossing there, um, which if you were to run the math on that, so this is something else. Everybody says buy on actuals. 
guys, you get, you got to have some creativity there. If you walked into like, like a vacant stadium, you know, Gillette stadium and it's vacant and football shut down. Is it worthless because of that? No, there, there is some value to it. So same with this. So units were down rents were like at 695. Well, now we're at, I think 1300, maybe eclipsing that. And our gross rents are over 27,000 a month. Sure. Was the cash flow negative day one? Yes. Was it negative for a while? Yes, but you, you, you understand your market and you go do the work and you create that value. So that, that's where I think some people get hung up on, um, you know, they'll see some vacant units or a landlord that hasn't pushed the rents. So they'll be like, oh no, this property is only worth 200,000 and market says it's 400, but you know, you can push it to 600,000. So like I can maybe pay 225 and they're never going to get that deal because they're not seeing the creati creativity of the work that needs to be put into it. Sure. You're going to spend money on holding costs and all these other things. But just like hard money and any other expense, you factor that into your overall equation. And if you have that net positive, and for our business model, if we can refinance out of it and collect 100% of our capital back or close to on that refinance, it doesn't matter what the fees are. It doesn't matter what those holding costs are as long as we account for it on the front end. So, Love that deal. Great one to start with. What's another one? Okay, another deal that I was involved in, this is a few years ago before Brandon and I got together with Red Ladder. I think it was probably 2015. I had sent out some direct mail and I, I had done it in a really good school district in Omaha called District 66, which is pretty desirable. People like living there. This is a starter house neighborhood, which I was targeting on purpose. So I wanted to pick up basically starter homes that fly like hotcakes off the market if you want to sell them. And they're really easily rentable for good rents. So I had a, a lead that was a result of a letter that I'd sent. Their father had owned several investment properties and he had passed away. The kids are now, you know, 65 and 70 years old, right? So they now own his properties and they're basically unwinding the portfolio. This was the last thing left. It was a duplex side by side and, uh, you know, two bed, one bath with full basement in district 66 yard, the whole thing. Tell me, tell me you still own this. Thing. I do still own it. Of course. Yeah. You do. So this was, you know, again, five, six years ago, something like that, maybe seven. I was able to buy that with 10,000 bucks of my own, which I got from a line of credit and they financed $110,000 at 3% interest. And this was, you know, this is a while back, but when interest rates were a lot higher um, than, than they were through the, you know, last five years. But so I still own that. And that was a 20, I think a 25 year am amortization. And I just put it on, you know, like it's, it just cash flows like a monster. Oh, I mean, I have 120 grand into that 3% interest. And I think both sides, uh, they rent for 1200 bucks each side. Gosh. So, I mean, it's like a 2% rule. Um, so that was a, that was a pretty sweet deal. So, deal. You know, almost hundred percent seller financing. At so three, you're, sitting 3%. On, you're sitting on some equity there is what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. That was seller financing. Seller financing. I missed that. They gave you a 3% rate. Yes. Yeah. And, and they, they didn't need the cash because they're, you know, they're, they had cash. They just wanted some steady income to replace basically what was a pain in the butt rental for them. 3%. 3%. I didn't even, I, I wish I could say that it was me, my superior negotiating skills, but they came to the table and I said, Hey, would, I don't know if you guys would be open to this, but 2.5 does 2.5. Yeah. Have you, <laughs> have you, you know, have you like, what are you guys going to do with the money? And they're like, well, you know, we thought about actually financing that we, we were going to do that on the last one. It didn't, the guy kind of flaked out. He, they were like, but you know, if you had some money in it, I said, well, okay, how about would $10,000 work? 
And they said, yeah, that probably works. So then we started drawing out the paperwork and I said, well, what, you know, what do you guys think is a fair interest rate? And they said 3%. I'm they like, say, my, where do I sign? My CD <laughs> is kicking out two and a quarter. Yeah, that, I mean, that was probably the the driver of this. They're probably making like a half percent in their money market or savings account. And so they thought, you know, hey, 3% is not bad. Better than we can get it, you know, putting it in the bank. Makes me cringe. Yeah, right? And so that's another one. But you would never know that unless you ask the question. So you got to, you have to, you just have to ask. And, and yeah. you don't have to do it in a douchey way. You can just be like, what do you guys, you know, have you thought about what you're going to do with the money? Would it make more sense to have earn a higher interest rate than you can get at a bank? See what they say. It happens all the time for me when I, especially if an agent's involved, I'll say, okay, here's what we'll offer traditional purchase. Here's what we'll offer with some seller financing. And they're like, what? Sometimes I have to explain to the agent what seller financing is. And if the seller, if the agent knows, they'll say, oh, they'll never go for that. And I said, well, okay, I'm not asking you. I'm just, I'm telling you, that, you know, do your job. Because this isn't my agent. It's the seller agent. Uh, this is, this is what it is. And half the time, not half the time we offer, but half the time that that conversation happens where someone's like, they'll never go for that. Or that's too complicated. All you had to do is ask. And they're like, yeah, sure. And maybe they adjust it. Maybe I asked for a $300,000 surrogate care and they dock it down to 200 or maybe they wanted, maybe I asked for 5% and then moved it to 5.5. But just asking that question changes the rest of your life. It does. And Going back to the Papillion deal we were talking about, the 24 unit, that was part of the deal too, because we offered, I think, 1.65 uh, at a or, yeah, 1.65 million. And that was with 100% or, you know, 80% bank financing, but we would have had to bring 20% down. And the other offer was 50 grand more. So we offered 1.7 and we got $200,000, which was worth it because we didn't have to put all that money down as a down payment. We could apply that then toward the rehab instead and then get a quicker return on that money because we could do a refinance more quickly because we had more accessible capital. So that, that was a win-win too. And that was a that was a step one, step two offer. So we did basically offer A, offer B, and they took offer B, which was more money. Yeah, and it would have been fine. So say that was our one deal for the year and we knew we weren't going to take another deal down for a year. Sure, we could have put our own capital into it and it would have worked just fine. And, you know, the, the overall margin would have been better. The return on investment would have been, I mean, it'd be literally infinitely worse since we put in zero dollars <laughs> on the front end. Um, but... Ha then having capital for deals that we actually have to put money into that was then accessible because of that leverage leverage yes. i actually talked to those sellers about a year later when we refinanced because i need to get their bank information so i could pay them back and the lady the wife was just so thankful and she seemed honestly thankful from my memory that we had made those payments she didn't say what they used it for but the fact that we actually just came just a year later, came to the table and said, here's your money, here's the interest. And she was like, that was perfect. And she told us how, it, she told me how it affected her capital gains and like, it helped her so much. And so I guess, you know, I hear you earlier saying, I like to help people and stuff. Yeah, sure. I also like to make money. Sure. But it's crazy how in a situation like that, it really did help that individual and it, that we use that capital gain thing often. Yeah, There's two sides to the coin all the time. And I don't mm. want to call them the enemy, but the enemy is taxes or, or lost money, mm. because basically that is for me and you, we like to say that it goes and fixes this and that or hires 87,000 IRS agents. But basically we see no direct effect of the tax money that we are sending the government. But when we as the buyer, them as the seller can work together and figure out ways to minimize our taxes together, we both win with zero negative side effects. And it allows the deal to get done to be literally a win-win situation. Seller financing is great. 
It is great. I I I wish more people knew about it. In fact, I've heard some people, especially in the single family game, uh, towards the end of their ownership career, that's how they start offloading it. They don't sell it. They just turn it into a seller financing. They make the person put down like 5% or, you know, small, and then cash flow the heck out of it. That could be a really good, I mean, that basically turns a home that's now ammed over the last 20 years, you could turn around and am that again for another 5, 10 15, yes. 20 years. Yeah. And then you're not ripping the bandaid off and paying a huge chunk of taxes too. Then you can kind of slow drip it over, over time as a seller finance, you know, person yourself. So, yeah, I think, I mean, I, we, we've talked about this collectively, but I feel when you have been in this business for a long time and you, you start doing creative deals, like we're talking about, it's, it's really an, it's almost like a cheat code or an unfair advantage when you're walking into situations that people just don't understand because they think, you know, when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So if you come in and you describe something simply in a way that's easy to understand, people are like, Oh, you mean I don't have to pay all these taxes at once, or I can make more interest than 0.5% in the bank. But if you don't know how to describe that, people just have a pat answer of no. So I think being able to articulate what you're hoping to accomplish and how it can benefit the other person, not just you, it goes a long way. But but I think it's it's like you're walking around with so much more information than somebody else. It's like an unfair advantage when you walk into the room. 100% agreed. It's, you know, I was trying to tell somebody the other day that they're saying there's no deals out there, this, that. I was like, I promise you, if you pull up the MLS or any any service right now, there is a way to make money with one of those transactions, something that is online right now, and you can figure out a creative way that you're not having to come out of pocket with your own money. I guarantee it. It sounds like Robert Allen. Like it sounds like a fun game, but it, but it's true. It is there. You are just solving problems. You're solving the seller's problem, and you're on your own terms solving your own problem of either not having liquidity or not being able to take down the deal because of net worth and having to use them as the bank, etc. So, no, that's a that's a great story. What um I love that duplex. That's awesome. A duplex district sixty six. That's yeah. a, that's a no brainer. Um I will buy it from you for seller financing at four percent interest <laughs> if you wanna. Ooh, fancy. Yeah. Uh what uh, spend all that. What's what's next for Owen Dashner? Uh okay, so I have my very first general partnership uh role that I'm playing in a multifamily syndication. So I'll be buying a hotel at the end of uh, October in Branson, Missouri with, uh, some new partners, Andrea and Axel Foley. We're going to take 152 room hotel and convert it into 142 unit apartment complex. And, uh, man, I have a lot of respect for what you guys do because man, this stuff is complicated. If you've never done it before, it gets easier as you go. Yeah, sure. I bet. But man, I've, I've learned a ton. It's been fun learning it. And I, and you know, we've talked, uh, several times during this, where if the rug was pulled out from under me on this deal and uh, of the, you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of hours that I've spent on various aspects of it, I'd be just fine with that. Cause I've learned so much going through this process. So even if you've been in this business for a long time, like I have, I feel like a kid again, because I'm learning all these new things that I feel like I probably should have known, but I don't. So I, there, I'm excited about that. There's a boatload of work in, in obviously running the business plan of a multifamily, but I mean, you have a, a lot of experience in the long hold 
real estate rental investments. So that'll be really easy. It's just some of that learning curve up front is all the legal documents and the jargon and the collecting of money and stuff. And But luckily for you and, and certainly for your investors, you've already owned real estate. You know how to run that show. So it's, it's going to be pretty easy. Is it a 506B or a 506C? It'll be a C. However, there is a, a chance that we might be able to do a JV out of this, but we're going to know that here within the next like day or two. 506C meaning that you, uh, the investor needs to be accredited. Yes. Correct. Okay. Yeah. So you can advertise for it publicly and you can take investor capital as long as they're accredited investors from basically anybody. Whereas a 506B would have to be, uh, you would know better than me, but you would have to deal with people that you already know uh, personally, and they don't necessarily have to be accredited, but they have to pass other like milestones or hurdles pre-existing relationships. But. Yeah. Um, so that's that. Yeah. So I'm excited about that. Uh, I'm, I'm excited about the growth of liquid lending. Um, and I want to keep like, I'm kind of a deal junkie. I always have been, and I get excited about finding stuff, putting things together, starting businesses, you know, the maintenance of them after the fact, eh, I can, you know, kind of take it or leave it, but that's why I surround myself with people to know how to run good businesses. So um, I want to keep doing what I'm doing in that space, grow through, you know, multifamily syndications is, is fun and exciting. I want to do new stuff and just stay in the game and energized and be around cool people that are doing kick butt projects. And I also have been, you know, invited to a lot more podcasts and speaking engagements lately. I get a lot out of that myself. So I want to continue doing that and exploring that and seeing, you know, seeing where that leads to. That's great. I, we've both been on your podcast and you're a lot of fun, man. Oh, you thanks, really man. I mean yeah. That. No, this is a lot of fun. Um, okay. We have three final questions for you before we part ways, sadly. Number one, what are your daily habits, things you've done that have gotten you here and something you certainly want to uh, implement moving forward? I work out five days a week. So every, every day after I drop my kids off at school, I go to the gym like clockwork and I make that, um, it, an unassailable segment of my calendar. So I don't let anything interrupt that typically, unless it's an absolute emergency. Uh, so that's become really, really important to me. And I think I started doing this when Colin was making fun of me about being fat when I mm -hmm. first met him at uh, one of the first meetups. Sounds about right. I remember him poking me in the belly and asked me if I ate cheeseburgers or something. <laughs> Uh, but no, I've been doing that for almost five years now and, um, probably and arguably the best shape of my life, um, with some exceptions, but wow. I do that. I do that, uh, religiously and, uh, I'm a big, big believer in it. Um, I journal, uh, and I used to do that seven days a week. I don't do it as often now. And I know you and I talked about this recently, Colin, but, uh, that's been really good for me to just get my thoughts out of my head. Uh, write down what I'm worried about currently because it's fun to go back and see what God I was worried about that mm. what the heck that was no big deal but looking back at what you you know kind of milestones in your life what your what your accomplishments were what you were worried about at the time and then any significant you know breakthroughs that you've had so I like I like time stamping that and going back it's kind of fun just to see progress and and your mindset change the the more time you have removed from you know a certain journal entry is funny, man. You go back to the whole thing where people say people underestimate how much you can accomplish in five years and they mm -hmm. overestimate how much you can do in one year. So looking at the cumulative effect of that over a five-year period is pretty astonishing. Love that quote. I forgot who said that. That's somebody we should all know, but that's a great quote. Yeah. So I think the, you know, those two things are certainly helpful. I kind of go in fits and starts with meditation too. I just can't do it for very long. I'm like five minutes tops feels weird, but I like doing that because it kind of like helps me stay focused a little bit better. I'm not great or great at that, but, um, it's, it's something, if you make it part of your discipline, your daily discipline, it, it 
it can do, you know, I could see how people can benefit from it. I'm just not great at doing it long term. I think that non-negotiable is huge, man. That's good to hear. Yeah. And then I think probably uh, this isn't a daily thing, but it's a weekly thing for me. I, I meet with a new, I try to meet with a new person in real estate in some capacity, whether they're experienced, new, middle of the road, agent, investor, wholesaler, some facet of real estate once a week. And I look at that as my uh, KPI. So I measure myself on that. And I have, I can probably attribute 75 to 80% of my success and growth over the last five years solely to that practice and going to meetups, uh, in-person meetups. That's great. Yeah. What, are you parlaying that meetup? What if you met somebody new at the meetup? Does that count? Oh, am I still, am yeah. I counting that? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't count that. I only count my one-on-ones. <laughs> so, I always meet somebody new at those meetups. Yeah. And you know, I, it's funny. I know you give me a hard time about, Oh, you meet anybody new today having <laughs> cocktails and coffee and whatever. But I, uh, I have made so many good relationships out of that with so many different, just varying levels of people. And the thing that's really cool is if I look back at people that I met five years ago that I had coffee with, there's some of them that are surpassed me by, by a long ways. I mean, you were brand new, not even five years ago, Colin in this business. I remember I was nervous to call you. Yeah. And, and now look, I mean, you're, you've done things that I, I, I will never accomplish you with your businesses. You surpassed him. So just, just not in height. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, but th- those are some of my, my, I, I would say key daily and weekly habits like that. I like that new person Re- reading every day. I read every day without fail. Gosh. I have a non, nonfiction book and a fiction book going and I don't read, I read like maybe 10 pages of it. So I have to ask on that because I just started reading fiction probably two months ago. I reread the four hour work week mm-hmm. and Tim Ferriss said basically his, his whole thing is he doesn't, he doesn't add on too many books at once. So he has a nonfiction book and that's typically more throughout the day, morning, audible, et cetera. But at night he'll read a fiction book and that kind of help, helps the mind go to sleep, but also, you know, kind of gives you some tunnel focus so that you can fall asleep. And it's done after I journal for things that are bothering me because I get it out. And I've noticed since doing that, I fall asleep so much better. and I don't wake up in the middle of the night with the anxiety. I, I do. I fall asleep reading. So I read basically about 20, 30 minutes before I go to bed and it's always fiction. So it helps to kind of like clear out your mind and you're I'm, I get immersive in a in a story. So whether I'm watching a movie or reading a book, I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm there. So are you saying my Netflix and HBO habit before I go to bed is not productive? <laughs> it's uh, the blue light's not what, very good for you. Whatever yeah. works, man, put on your blue light goggles and you'll be good. Yeah. I think well, I'm jealous of you both, but that's awesome. I think that uh, certainly what I've learned from that is, and I've learned this just recently, like in the last three weeks is block that on your calendar, make it non-negotiable. I love it, man. Um, snap your fingers. You're starting over right now. No money, no connections. No KPIs met every week. Uh, what's the first thing you would do to uh, accelerate your real estate career? Whatever city you're living in, get on Facebook and search for investor meetup, real estate investing meetup. Find out who has one, and I'd also I'd also search for REIA, R E I A, so Real Estate Investor Association. Most major any cities of any size have a local REIA chapter. Find out when they're meeting. Well, first of all, join those groups on Facebook and then go in person to those groups and then make it your mission when you go to those groups to meet one or two really 
quality, have one or two really quality conversations with people that you've never met before. Mm -hmm. So that not hand out a business card and be like, Hey, nice to meet you, blah, blah, blah. And then what do you do? What do you do? What do you do? No, have a really solid conversation where you can pick that up the next time and say, you know, I remember you told me that you like flipping single family houses in district 66. I came across this lead and it might fit, you know, here you go, basically making the connection. So you need to make connections in those to get your, get to start getting some traction. But the other biggest shortcut for getting started is go work for a real estate investor who's successful. Yeah. Period. I don't care if you're shoveling, you know, snow or whatever it is, but go get a job. I mean, how many people have sought you out, Colin, from afar that found you on bigger pockets or found you just randomly or heard you on a podcast and they said, I want to come work for you. I'm motivated. I don't know what I can do. I mean, this has happened to you so many times. It's a significant portion of our staffing. Yeah. And so that that is that's an insane, you know, thing that doesn't happen in most like corporate jobs. You know, people don't just get hired because they heard somebody on a podcast. Yeah. But if somebody's motivated and they want to learn and they do the things that you're telling them they need to do. So, you know, education is great. Networking is a must, um, but taking action and that action, if you really want to shortcut your, your uh, getting started in this business, go work for a successful investor. And if you go to those meetups, you'll find out quickly who those successful investors are. And you can, you know, if let's say you're an agoraphobic person and you only want to be a voyeur on uh, on these Facebook groups, you'll see who's active on those Facebook groups and who's doing deals. And if that doesn't work, if you're if your area doesn't have one, even better, start one yourself. Right, right. That is the fastest way to accelerate your success and getting started in this business. It's Colin the catalyst. Did Colin did that exactly. Even if there is a meetup, you can still start a different one. Everybody likes. There's people that like Coca Cola. There's people that like Pepsi. Yep. You can be Pepsi. Pepsi's better, but yeah, I feel you, man. That's why I'm glad you started Pepsi. Thanks. Third question, and that's a good segue. Are you now hiring and or what are you looking to partner with people in right now? Mm, that's a good one. So hiring right now, always looking for good contractors in the Omaha, Nebraska market, and now looking for referrals to anybody that might be able to help our business in Branson, Missouri. So looking for contractor connections there, banking connections. We are raising capital uh, for that project in Branson. So we'll be looking for basically investor limited partners in our uh, in our syndication there. So I don't know when this will air, but feel free to reach out to me. I'll give you my uh, my cell phone number is 402-578-4003. Be happy to talk to anybody who wants to uh, give me a shout or a text and uh, you know we can talk further about that. But always looking to network in uh, in various markets and meet people that are doing awesome stuff. So, you know, feel free to reach out. We'll be sure to leave your uh, email in the notes as well. Yep. So I can get a hold of you. Owen, this is fantastic, man. This has been a long time coming. So. I am honored to be on this uh, original podcast that you guys started. I love it. It's, it's great. It's awesome to have you, man. It's crazy too, because I've known you for so long and I learned so many things about you. It's, it's great. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, yep. thank you. And uh, actually, one last thing. Uh, Owen is the host of the Omaha or the Rhea Radio podcast. So check that out. That'll also be in the show notes. Great so. podcast. If you like hearing him talk today, he he's just as good in his podcast. He's fun. <laughs> adds a lot of color. Him and Ted do a good job with that. So does Denless. Denless is a great member of that team. The unsung well. hero, Heck Denless yeah. Bertrand back Heck there. Yeah. I can Heck see the yeah. top of his head through the window. Denless is with us right now. <laughs> mix, mas mix master mic back there. <laughs> I'd say that my number one takeaway from this podcast has been uh, a quote that Owen dropped that honestly encompasses every way that we look at every deal. And that's uh, 
don't be the hammer that only looks at, don't be the hammer that only looks for nails. I've heard it before. I've never thought of its applicability to what we do as investors. But uh, if you get wrapped up in that tunnel vision, it is so difficult to find what you're trying to get to. And, and that could be because you don't have the money or you don't have the banking connects or you don't know how to swing an actual hammer. It could be anything. But I love the quote that you, you just don't want to be, you, you shouldn't just be that hammer that's only looking for nails. And I think that wraps up everything in every which way that Owen really has accelerated and built his, all of his businesses. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree with that more. Um, people that are getting into real estate investing are typically looking the cash that they have to go buy a property to get cash flow. There's so much more to that when he, and we just got into it at the end, but the networking aspect and how much that's built his business oftentimes in these real estate books, I mean, that's, that's, you know, a, a footnote. It's not really even, you know, pushed into people's minds, but adding those little things become, it, you create the whole package. It's basically like a balanced meal. You can't just live on chicken breast. Maybe you could, but you're not going to be healthy. It's adding in all these different things. You're adding your vegetables, you're adding your fruits, you're adding your grains, and you're creating that. And so you're, you're creating a complete, uh, complete background of experience and ability to, to move forward and move forward in your business and not just linearly. Love it, man. All right. Well, this is Chris Pomerlew and Colin Schwartz, and this is wrapping up the Keeping It Real Estate Podcast.